Sería estupendo Estados Unidos. Y otro regalo. Carly Lloyd desde la mitad de la cancha. ¡Viene, viene! Oh. ¡Gol! ¡Gol! Don, are your dogs afraid of fireworks? The one, to some degree, yes, both of them are, but uh, the one much more than others. I know that everyone thinks their dog is smart or the best, oh, the best dog or whatever they say about their dogs. People say insane things about their dogs, and I am certainly included in that. My dog absolutely thinks he's human. Okay. He has gone to the fireworks every single year of his life. And I'm not a dog guy. I'm a my dog guy. Right. And a maybe your dog guy if I know your dog and decide to like it. Right. But I'm not just one of these people who's just like universally in love with dogs. It's not necessarily the case. But so I didn't know that that was a thing, that dogs were afraid of uh, fireworks. We took Colston to the fireworks and someone that was there was like, you bring your dog here? Isn't he going to be scared? And I just then noticed on social media that this is a thing. Dogs are afraid of fireworks. Yeah, I saw the oatmeal, the webcomic guy. I have no reason to think he made this up. Said that it's like the number one day for dogs to run away because they just freak out or whatever. Really? Yep. Unbelievable. Or believable, depending on how much you know about dogs. I looked up an article entitled, Does Your Dog Love You? Because I was curious if my dog really loved me because I'm insecure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the number one way you can tell, I guess, is if he wants to sleep with you. Because of something with dogs being pack animals. and Okay. So, and I was thinking, well, that sucks for people who just don't let their dog sleep with them. So, you know, people are... Right. Or someone who's got just a St. Bernard or something. like. Right. But, yeah, we don't let our sleep with us anymore because he's too big. Yeah. They age out of that. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice thing about having a 10-pound dog. All right, this is going nowhere, so let's start the show. <laughs> uh, season 5, episode 21. It's July 8th, 2015. Very hot Buffalo, New York. We're very busy today. Uh, someone tweeted me last night to save some of the guests for everyone else. Uh, no. Oh, uh, yeah? Who's that? Some, anyone of note? Uh, someone who does the Sabres podcast. Oh, that's cool. I don't know who he is. I followed him after he tweeted me out of sort of guilt. <laughs> you know, that he was supporting us and I wasn't supporting him. Gotcha. Uh, but no, we build this show on booking guests, and we have three different and interesting ones today. Katie Baker from Grantland. Our friend was at the Women's World Cup final in Vancouver. We'll get a firsthand perspective from her on one of the biggest days in U.S. the history of U.S. soccer. Uh, Brett Martin, the author of the book Difficult Men, which we featured in 2013, uh, joins us to talk about TV and writing about food and uh, just to catch up and chat. And SUNY Fredonia grad Kevin Lieber, the head of uh, Vsauce2, is also on the show to talk oh, yeah. about 
his work at YouTube. That's cool. So we got a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. Only some sports, as far as inter- interviews go, but that's the summer, right? We get this stuff in now, and in some of the lulls, we can do something different. And uh, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna do three things. We're gonna do Katie Baker book club. Then we're gonna do the Brett Martin and the Kevin interview just back to back. They're long, so I didn't think we needed to add another segment in between. Okay. Brett will end. Kevin will start, and then we'll close the show with one last thing. So it's a lot to do. Let's start three things now. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. Team USA scored four goals in the first 16 minutes and crushed Japan 5-2 to two in what is the highest rated and most watched soccer match in the history of the United States. Really? They proved me wrong, uh, which I was sad on the podcast for the last two weeks. I was hoping they'd do. I watched all, right. all seven of their games, and absolutely during the first four, not for one minute did they look like a team that could beat two of the top four teams in the nation, or the world, excuse me, to win the World Cup. I'm proud of them. I enjoyed watching it. Did you watch it? I knew it was on. Um, I think I had a party that day or something, and I came home and I turned it on. I think there was like 10 minutes left, but I mean, at that point... You're just watching for the handshakes and stuff. It, it was over. There, were, there was a lot of cards, I guess, in that last few minutes, but uh, nothing of note. But yeah, I saw the highlights afterward. It was over before it started. Four, two goals in four minutes, something like that. Yes, Kerry uh, Lloyd had a hat trick. We'll talk about the game a lot more with Katie Baker, but I wanted to talk about the ratings a bit. Uh, it posted a 15.2 rating. Wow. 27 share. Uh. It's the highest metered market rating ever for a soccer game in the U.S. on a single network. Um, It surpassed the previous mark set by the 1999 Women's World Cup final, uh, which saw a 13.3 rating. Uh, It had it peaked at 20. It had an average of 25.4 million viewers, uh, which is ridiculous. Yeah, and beat just about every non-football. Sporting event so far this year. I mean, the last game of the World Series, the last game of the NBA, all the Stanley Cup games, the final Frozen Four, or the Final Four, all of that. Yeah. Crushed it. I mean, it was in a perfect, I'm, I'm not trying to belittle that or try to explain it away, but it was in a perfect slot. It had oh, when you no get a rating like that. Yeah, it's a perfect storm when you get a rating like that. Right. It's, it's a national team. Everyone's nas- right. team. Yep. Uh, the top 10 cities were interesting to me. Uh, Kansas City, St. Louis, San Diego, Denver, Austin, Seattle, Washington, West Palm Beach, San Francisco, and Las Vegas. Very much a Midwest to West draw there. Yeah, the biggest MLS teams tend to come from that. Like, yeah, like Seattle, Portland. Yeah. yeah, But just a really interesting, I thought. Kansas City says they're, they like to claim to be to soccer what we are to hockey. Which is great. Good for Kansas sure. City. Yeah, they can have and it. And they yes. had a great uh, party. Uh, so congratulations to the U.S. women. They made me proud. 
Uh, I love the opportunity to be on Twitter when everyone's on the same team on there. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, even though some people had to try to ruin that by pointing out people making potentially insensitive, albeit, I think, naive tweets about Pearl Harbor or whatever, or the Jeez. atomic bomb. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, people, they just don't even, to them, it's something that happened in history. There's right. no realism to it. Like, it's irresponsible, but I don't think they meant it. I don't mean to give people a pass for being stupid, but <laughs> um, yeah, I just ignored it and just spent my time enjoying people enjoying the game. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's not a good move, but there are people out there that are that try to police the internet. So yeah, it's not for me to police. No, I, it's too big. I I don't have. Look, I wish that element wasn't there, but I don't have the energy. Speaking of police, uh, they have pressed charges. On the now ejected DeAndre Johnson, yeah, a quarterback from Florida State, who is doing well. His lawyer is doing his best to f- switch the blame from the man with a D1 football scholarship to the 105-pound right. woman by saying that, "Hey." DeAndre doesn't make any excuses for what he did, and he's going to learn from it. But here are these excuses. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, of course, the excuses that we're going to give you are ones you can't prove wrong because there's no sound. Yeah. By saying, oh, she called him this. Right, right. Or she called him that. And I don't need to tell you what DeAndre says she called him. E- either way, uh, you got to realize there's a way that he can walk away from this looking good and still like go get a bouncer i got Uh, some options he can just literally turn away right walk away um he could i mean talk i mean there is no no threat to him at all people are coming out of the woodwork to say things like if she's gonna act like a man she's gonna get treated like a man like would you say that to like your your child i mean this is if if you had a I mean, there's some big kids out there. You had a 10-year-old kid that was as big as this girl that threw a punch at you. I mean, does he have a mark on his face? I think, you know, technically there's, like, the laws of domestic violence. Like, just because a man hits a woman doesn't mean he's arrested. Like, two, a couple could, like, get in a fight and maybe one slaps. The, he slaps the girl, but she gouges his eye. And everyone's kind of equal and they're both standing there and the police kind of... Let it go. This guy dr- drilled her into next week. Right. Yeah. Knocked her out. Yeah. I mean, he blasted her face in. Yep. Yeah. No. No excuse. I mean, walk away. You want some quotes? Yeah, love. Love some. Um, it wasn't until she struck him twice that he reacted. But he is very, uh, he is very regretful that he didn't turn around and walk away immediately. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. He makes no excuses for what happened. All he wants to do is learn from the experience and move on and get an education. We certainly don't want him to pay for the rest of his life for an incident that occurred in a bar. I agree with that. I mean, it does him no good. He he should be punished, whatever right. the appropriate punishment is, and then he should have a chance to rebuild his life. Yeah. Is it uh, too much of a leap to say this is a Florida State problem? No. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I think the college mentality in general, we've pointed out 
many disgusting stories involving the college football culture, but uh, too many of them lately involving Florida State. His lawyer also said that he tried to de-escalate the situation, but the woman need him in the groin area and took another swing before he retaliated. He's a freshman, right? Or what year is he? Uh, yeah, he he would be. Uh, he's a redshirt freshman. From Jacksonville, he was Mr. F- Mr. Football. Is it even like legal for Florida. him to be in a bar? No, he's 19. <laughs> uh, she was 21. Yeah, I mean it's. And she she called him racial epithets. Maybe I mean, whatever. Yeah, she shouldn't have hit him, but I mean, he didn't. He doesn't have a scratch on him. I'm sure, and you just there's there's different. The the way, like I said, people crawling out of the woodwork to say if she's going to act like a man, she's going to get treated like a man, is insane to me. It's, I I live on a different planet from those people. Apparently, I just the amount of force is just ridiculous. Right, right. Like, if it that's was pushing, the level, right, if it right, was pushing, she, yeah, I would probably take a side. Like, sure. if they push each other, if she knees him in the groin, calls him a racial epithet, and the only way he can escalate it. Is by pushing her right. and walking away. Right. You won't hear from me. Right. Okay, but, fine. But it's not like she pulled a knife or a gun. He blasted her in <laughs> yeah. the face. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, they Florida State did the right thing. And quiet your lawyer. Why is he on the Today Show? Yeah, Come on. Who knows? Go away. Yep. Uh, Florida State did the right thing, but... They waited awfully long. It, and it's easy, right? Isn't this guy like the backup quarterback or eh, no I, well i think that the assumption is that the guy from you know notre dame will take the spot okay but that doesn't mean uh ever golson but that doesn't mean that this kid wouldn't have had a chance to compete at some point, and didn't yeah. have a very long future as a player there sure all right let's lighten the mood all right the major league baseball all-star game is coming up soon uh next week and it made me think since this week they announced the ro- no over there okay. no none of that <laughs> we're gonna play a game called what team does the all star play for oh no <laughs> this is gonna be worse than the other game well, how no. many games into the season are they oh they're about halfway it is about halfway oh yeah yeah you figure they played April May and June yeah yeah now they're into July and then they'll have the rest of July August and September to go yeah. I am not going to try to get you to name the obscurest of the All-Stars. I want to see if you know the stars. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Probably not. Buster Posey. Uh, The Detroit Tigers. No. Come on. That one you got to know. Maybe the best catcher in baseball right now. Three-time World Series champion with the Giants. Oh. Okay. Um, Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper plays for the Nationals. Good job. Giancarlo Stanton. Oh, no. Leads the major leagues in home runs. Um, Changed his name from Mike Stanton. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, the Angels. Florida Marlins. Florida. Max Scherzer. Oh, we just had him. It's also the Nationals. Correct. Miguel Cabrera. Uh, Gotta know this one. The Yankees. No, the Tigers. <laughs> wow, you are bad. Mike Trout. Uh, the Phillies. 
Angels. Yes, the Angels. Okay. There you go. And lastly, a new star. Oh, no. But one that was very much a part of two more. Uh, Alex Gordon. I feel like we talked about him not too long ago, too. Um, Jeez. He's not on the Pirates. No, he's not. But a similar team in the other league. A very parallel team to the Pirates, but in the National League instead of the American. Would be a parallel, like the Brewers or somebody. Well, but they're also in the National League, so yeah, oh, that, okay. that's the right idea. But think American League. The a team Orioles. That, no, a team that, like the Pirates, has very much been a discussion on this show the Royals. since day one. Yes, okay. the Royals. Okay, we gotta end this. Uh, <laughs> oh man. We have to. I need uh, to play fantasy baseball. I think I want you to live tweet the All-Star game this year. (laughs) Yeah. That would be fun, I think. Don live tweeting the the All-Star game. How about if I let you, would you be able to name one other All-Star? Probably not. Pujols? Pujols didn't make it, no. Mm. Uh, how about the other kid from the Nationals? Um, well, I know him. he didn't no. make it either. No, Strasburg's who I was thinking of. Yeah. Um. Uh, A Rod must have made it, right? No, really. He's one of the uh, big snubs. Wow, people just hate him. They huh? do. They just hate him. I mean, um, do you know what team Madison Bumgardner plays for? Uh, the Red Sox. No. I, then no. He's the guy who was the had the most unbelievable World Series of all time, which we talked about at nauseum on the podcast just in uh, October. I don't remember. <laughs> all right. We have a lot more to do than tease Don about his <laughs> lack of baseball knowledge. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk to Katie Baker. Uh, then we are going to do the book club, Brett Martin, Kevin Lieber, and then we'll be back. At the very end, with one last thing. Our next guest is from Pennington, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. She writes for Grantland and is now only the second most beloved New Jersey female in America. She's making her sixth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Katie Baker. How's it going, Katie? Hi, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Carly Lloyd took your spot as the most beloved New Jersey girl. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tobin Heath might might actually be number two. She got a goal. She oh, that's that, right, yeah. That, that goal to go, everyone was... Scared when it went to four two, um, even though that was a silly thing to be scared about. That was probably the biggest moment of tension in the game. And then another Jersey girl, Tobin Heath. All right, well, Chris Christie. Chris Christie was pretty happy about the game. Oh yeah, let's back up a little bit though. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, you got to uh, see some of these games. Let's start with the. You went to the uh, the Columbia game. Now I was a jerk, sort of, because after that game, I doubted them very much. I thought. And I will totally admit to following only tournaments like this. I mean, I 
I am not. Uh, I am a very much a root for the sweater kind of a person when it comes to women's and men's soccer. Really, um, I'm not a big club soccer guy, uh, but I just thought they just looked like a team that there's just no way they could win the tournament. Yeah, I mean <clears throat> that Columbia game. It was it was like tied zero zero at halftime and. Um, the, I don't know what the breakdown was numbers-wise, but sound-wise, the Columbia fans sort of took over the um, the stadium in Edmonton. And, um, you know, you just started to wonder, like, is, is this the end? And, um, you know, Columbia, this could be sort of the, the team on the rise and everything like that. So um, I think one of the, the benefits to the Columbia game was that uh, Megan Rapino and Lauren Holiday both got – their second yellow card right. to the tournament, and so they were suspended for the following game against China. And I think in some ways it, it kind of forced a little bit of a shake-up in the lineup. Um, they had to try a few new things, and I think also they, they just knew that, um, you know, against China they would benefit from more of a kind of dynamic um, uh, lineup. And um, But even after that happened, I think going into the semifinal game against Germany, I was... I I met a bunch of um women's soccer diehards many of whom either work for or cover um the um the women's soccer league pro league so these are people who you know they were telling me about players I'd never even heard of and um and they were all very pessimistic going into the Germany game right. um and but then when they found out the lineup and that they you know they weren't starting at Abby Wambach which was kind of the the bellwether of whether they were going to be shaking things up or kind of going with the old guard, so to speak, um, they were a little more optimistic. And then that Germany game obviously was, um, for me, one of the highlights of, of the tournaments and the games I saw. It was almost like they did just enough to win at the beginning of the tournament. Like that Columbia mm-hmm. game is probably a great example. They weren't, they weren't good in the game, but they got a goal. It was almost like a one-seed struggling in the NCAA tournament in the early rounds. But if you survive in advance... Nobody cares that you struggled against Columbia. And I had heard from uh, some of the good work that Fox uh, had had did on the tournament and also from some people I reached out to on Twitter that knew better than me that we did get a break in the matchup, that we matched up better as a team against Germany than we would have against France. So yeah. I had a little bit of optimism as far as, as far as that, that, okay, well, this is a better matchup for us and... Uh, you know, yeah, we haven't been great in this tournament, but we have been great in this tournament as a nation the whole time it's existed. And, uh, you know, I, I also thought, you know, oh, they've gotten this far without Alex Morgan really contributing much. I think she only had the one goal. So I was optimistic. So I had a little bit of optimism, but that Germany game, man, that was a really intense, physical, <laughs> pretty rough yeah. soccer game. Yeah, it um it sort of reminded me like what you were saying about um their trajectory in the tournament. Like in some ways there was a little bit of, you know, Canadian national hockey team there where right, yeah, that's um good. they've got such the historical um, you know, advantage I guess and um and then they've kind of got this entrenched um you know, federation that has certain players and certain mindsets that they, you know, that some people believe they seem kind of stuck in. And, you know, the question is always, do you pick the best 
X number of players for the team, or do you try to pick the best team, you know, that happens to be composed of a certain number of players? And so there's always going to be arguments about that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, in the Columbia game was pretty physical, too, because you could kind of see that Columbia was almost like, I don't want to say targeting, because it's not like they were doing anything out of bounds, but, you know, I think they knew they knew who had yellow cards, and, um, you know, someone like Megan Rapino, they were definitely, you know, playing her really physically, and, you know, they, they did what they wanted to do there, but, but yeah, the Germany game was really, you know, two, two teams that um, were really butting heads, and um, it was crazy when, when, uh, when Germany had the penalty kick, which would have put them ahead one nothing mm-hmm. um and and she missed the kick after after hope solo kind of iced her a little bit there um the the sound in the stadium like it's hard to even describe one, one philly writer described it as a thunderclap of sound and um it was it was i would i would think it was probably even louder than when carly lloyd scored on her penalty kick people were it was like this combination of celebration and like total relief Relief, um and it was like such a and you know the olympic stadium in montreal is kind of a unique place so that was that was one of the most memorable uh you know moments of the tournament for me you mentioned canada did you notice the the tone in and around the stadiums change i mean obviously when you're in the u.s game you're surrounded by a partisan u.s crowd mostly we had a great turnout at all the games i thought for for the team it was very nice. But what about the general tone of the tournament in the country uh, when Canada was still competing and then after Canada was eliminated? Um, I think, you know, when when Canada lost to uh, to England, I believe, um, mm-hmm. after that people were, were pretty bummed out. I mean, I think, you know, some people were kind of envisioning the potential of like a USA-Canada final, and obviously that would have been, that would have been something. But um, it, it ranged, like, in... Um, it ranged from people that sort of didn't even seem to realize things were going on. I mean, if you're in a city like Montreal, there's there's so much happening every day that um, it's just kind of one more thing. But then, um, you know, but but every game I went to, probably with the exception of the final, just given um, the U.S. fans that had sort of optimistically bought up all the seats, like even before the tournament started. Um, but definitely in Edmonton and in Montreal, there were a lot of Canadians that just went to see the games and um and I think sometimes we're torn between who they're rooting for, you know, like they're probably sick of the US but um but, you know, in some ways like I, I think especially against Germany, um, in Montreal, a lot of the, the people I talked to were like, All right, we'll root for the US to win. Um so and I mean they you know, to some to some extent like the the US being in the tournament is was great for the the turnout and the, the hype and that sort of thing, which, you know, is, is only good, you know, showcasing Canada. And, and it was cool to go to, I went to Edmonton, Montreal and Vancouver. So it was really cool to see all these different cities. And um, so it was, they were, they were great hosts. How was the Connor McDavid buzz in, in uh, Edmonton? Well, when I landed at the airport, I was walking past the baggage claim and they had like, um, different baggage claim carousels had like different Edmonton sports um, exhibits, kind of. And so I, the first one I walked past was the an Edmonton Oilers one. So they have like these little statues of like little mannequins of um, of Oilers players. 
um, celebrating, which which seems like it, they must have installed that quite some time ago. Um, <laughs> but then they had a um, they had a like a TV cha- like a TV um, channel. I don't know if it was like some closed circuit network or or what it was, but it was playing Connor McDavid combine highlights. <laughs> I was like, like oh my chops? gosh, here we go. <laughs> um, and then even in even in Vancouver, I walked into like a little sporting goods store that sold all different kinds of jerseys and like right in the window they had a huge mcdavid oilers jersey hanging and um so i mean it's it's really reaching a fever pitch it's it's fun to be in canada where all the sports bars have you know tsn playing and it's like non-stop hockey highlights right um the way that you know we here in america see non-stop football and, and basketball but so, so that was fun yeah that's interesting they and then uh i he really went out and disappointed everyone in their first scrimmage. He only had five goals or whatever, and only like oh, four of them were absolutely <laughs> dazzling. Yeah, he'll he'll do that. That worked out well for Edmonton. They'll they'll enjoy that uh, for sure. Yeah, I was actually at a I was at a bachelorette party in Florida on like a cocktail cruise when the when the lottery took place, and I I checked it on my phone and I like screamed like oh my god i can't believe edmonton just won i know and my friends were like what what and i was trying to i was trying to explain it to them it was very hard to to put it into some sort of terms that made sense yeah um, i was actually my reaction was was pretty funny i was actually at our arena um for a concert and there's a there's a pretty like i don't know if you've ever been to our arena or not but um it's really open in the front and then when you walk in and go up the escalators, the 100 level, it like goes out into the concourse or into the atrium sort of. And there's this bar that's sort of like almost like on a deck, it looks like if you're when you first walk in and it goes through and the whole thing was packed with people. But there was no volume. So nobody knew when he opened the Edmonton envelope that nobody really picked up on the fact that it was yellow and that meant they won. Like everyone just thought because the Edmonton logo was in the envelope that that meant they had that pick. Yeah. So there wasn't much reaction to it, and then they like moved it, and everyone's like, oh, oh well, Eichel. I mean, nobody's disappointed here at all. So. Right, right. I mean, the Eichel hype, I'm sure, matches the uh, McDavid hype for sure. But, um, oh, yeah, I'm sure they're going to have a packed crowd for all the, the dev camp and everything. Yeah, they have the game. It's Friday, and they had to sell tickets this year, and they, they didn't charge much, but they just said we, we just can't have – the arena just wide open like we have in the past and have 40,000 people show up. Yeah. You know, so, um, but back on task anyway. So they get through that Germany game, like you said, uh, with solo icing sausage and then, uh, um, getting the, the PK of their own and, and winning that game. And then going into the final, I did see that there were people buying, uh, tickets the day of the game. Uh, but that must've even helped the crowd more. What was the, breakdown in terms of the crowd rooting for the u.s and rooting for japan i mean like there were definitely japan fans there i mean there's there's a pretty big population in vancouver and um you know even like kind of right in front of me there is probably you know 10 to 12 people cheering for japan but um but it was it was on the whole like overwhelmingly u.s um and i went to the the American Outlaws, which is like the big fan um, organization for U.S. soccer, um, they really kind of amped up their presence. That you know they usually are 
kind of focused on the men's team, but they really emptied their presence for the women's tournament. And I think they had sold, you know, an entire section's worth of seats like a year ago. Um, so I went to their kind of pre-party and then did like the march to the stadium that they all did. And the, the march was, was really something like, I mean, we, there were thousands of people like in the whole, in like a main downtown Vancouver street. Like it was the biggest parade I've ever been a part of. And it was funny to see, like, there was this this girl on the sidewalk who I think had just been walking down the street on the phone with her friend, and you could hear her going, oh, my God, the Americans are playing in the final. Like, listen to this, and just, like, holding up her phone. Um, so that was that was a really cool um, thing to, to take part of and, um, you know, to see all the – just the, the huge – variety of fans from you know I, I talked to a group of guys who were there on a bachelor party um and then you know you've got a ton of you know younger girls with their parents and then my favorite fans were like the younger boys who were you know dressed in in women's jerseys and stuff like that um so that so you know the atmosphere was definitely um you know that of like a u.s home game you know this game killed in the ratings i mean it did amazing it's the highest rated soccer game ever in the United States, I believe. And last year, I mean, the World Cup did amazing for ESPN. Killed record numbers all over the place. And I think that as much as it, you would want to say, well, that just shows that soccer is just so big in this country – I would say that maybe it's part of it. Sure, soccer is much bigger in this country than it was in 1994. But I still think that I think that ultimately the reason it does so well, and you can agree or disagree with this, is that we live in a country right now that can be so divided on so many different things all the time. When we have an opportunity to be on the same team and to cheer really loudly for the country that no matter how divided we are, we still love. Everyone just gets all in in doing that. And I think it's more about that than the popularity of soccer or women's sports or men's sports or anything like that. Yeah, I think in, I think in a lot of ways it's, I, mean, I think it's a combination of, um, you know, it being such a, like, event viewing, you know, kind of a once every four years thing. I mean, we'll have the Olympics next year, but, um, you know, these things don't happen that often. People love to you know, cheer for the U.S. Um, And, you know, I do think in general there has been growth in soccer. Just, you know, I just, as a kind of a a person with a television that flips around, like I'll, I see random MLS games and they're kind of visually fun to watch. You know, if you get like a a Portland-Seattle game and you're like, whoa, this this is kind of cool. Um, And, you know, and like last night I watched the, the men play Honduras in the Gold Cup, which I probably wouldn't have probably wouldn't have watched if I weren't kind of like just having spent a few weeks with a lot of soccer diehards and and just heard the, the way they talk and um, but yeah, I mean I think a lot of it is just you know it was also on like a Sunday night at the end of the holiday weekend. Right, and, it was perfect. Um, yeah, it's perfect. You yep. know, go to a bar, mm-hmm. and watch with your family, and um, you know the uh, if anyone you know, got, got, got to a watch party a little bit late. They, they kind of missed the whole game, but it was amazing to right. see how many people tuned in right to the end. 
obviously wanting to to see the the celebration and, and see like those final minutes. What do you think ultimately this team's uh, legacy will be? Like when you look back at the '99ers, as it's a term I didn't know before the start of this tournament, but um, it's basically how I guess we refer to the team that won it in '99. Um, you know, you think about them and and uh, the historic images of um, uh, Brandy with her, you know, taking in the sports bra, the Sports Illustrated cover, and uh, Ham and and that team. Uh, what do you think this teams uh what will we remember or think about with this team in 15 years or whatever well there's there's kind of two things i mean one i think there's there are players um who hopefully this is kind of the beginning of a long career for them um someone like morgan bryan who you know you, you may not necessarily notice like she's not she's not going to be like the alex morgan you know scoring goals type player but so as someone said to me, like she, she always does the right thing. Um, so I think she's the kind of player that's going to have a long career and pick up more fans. Um, Julie Johnston, obviously, this is kind of a coming out party for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, in a in a bigger sense, what I hope will happen is it will really kind of, you know, I think the '99 team and teams of that era, they were really playing in a time when. North America was, you know, donating funding and not donating, but, you know, investing funding in um, in the sports. But around the world, it wasn't quite the same situation. And I think we're starting to see the growth of, like, of it truly being a global sport for women. Um, I think the Columbia team is kind of an example of that. Um, and some other, you know, so hopefully that, that'll be one of the legacies. People will look at this and say, you know, it's, it's it's worth our dollars to to give our women more support and you know it's not that teams aren't that far from being competitive um there's more parity um you've got you know teams knocking off some of the traditional powers and that sort of thing so right it's not like softball sort of a thing it's not like softball where it's like okay the US is going to win or maybe this one other team could upset them yeah so right. that's that's like my hope is that right. it'll is that this will be not necessarily a turning point, but just like an accelerator of um, of the game on a more global level. And, you know, it it would be like, an, you know, in some ways like an honor for the U.S. if if their, their road gets a lot harder going forward because it'll mean that they've sort of, you know, helped, helped grow the sport internationally. Katie Baker writes for Grantland. You can find her on Twitter at Katie Bakes. And she wrote more about this, uh, her trip to... Uh, the final was in Vancouver, so that meant many uh, jokes on my timeline about, oh, the U.S. finally had success in a final in <laughs> Vancouver. Oh. As if the game was like 9 to nothing Canada or something, you know. like We had, we had no success yeah. in that game at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, she wrote more about that on Grantland.com. You can find her work there. What's uh, What are you doing this summer now? What's ahead uh, for you in the summer here? Uh, I don't really know. Um, hopefully I'm going to not travel for a couple of weeks after the, the cup final and, and the the world cup. Uh, they were all obviously amazing events to be a part of, but um, it'll be nice to, to have some couch time <laughs> for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're going to take a couple of days and regroup and figure out what, what we can work on next. Well, thank you for say- taking some time in your regroup stage for us. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. You got to come see Thanks Eichel. So 
You got to come down here and see Eichel and Eichel Madness in Buffalo because you got to. I know you got to. Not just Eichel, the whole team is like it's a whole new team. Yeah, we we boosted our rebirth up a year and a half or so, I think maybe with the uh, yeah. with the other moves. Uh, so I, it's a very exciting time. You have to come and uh, and you got to see the little peak of what Edmonton is like with uh, McDavid. You'll have to come uh, and see Eichel in Buffalo. Absolutely. Okay, I'll talk to you soon, Katie. Thank you. All right, thanks so much. Good to talk to you. All right, I just want to thank Katie Baker for being on the podcast today. Appreciate that. And just real quickly, wanted to update the books and where we're at with the book club. It's been a few weeks now since we talked to Blake Harris, the author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation. And finally, next week, we're going to talk to John Pessa. We're going to try to, I think, book sort of a mid-season baseball thing. And, of course, John's book, The Game, Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers, has been a baseball book that we've been reading the last few weeks. And then after that, it's on to whatever's next. Uh, so that's the baseball book. Figure out, Finish up the game. We'll have John next week. And then after that, we'll move on to something new. The rest of the podcast today, we're going to take a break after this. We're going to come back with Brett Martin the author of an old book club book of the month, Difficult Men. We'll talk to Brett. Then right after that, we're going to have an interview with Kevin Lieber, uh, the main man over at Vsauce 2, does all the videos there. And then Don and I will be back to close out the show uh, with one last thing. We'll be right back. Our next guest is from Brooklyn, New York, but now lives and writes in New Orleans, Louisiana. He's the author of the book Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, one of our book club books of the year in 2013. He's got another book about food he's working on. He's also a correspondent for GQ and has written for more magazines than I've even read. He's making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Brett Martin. How are you doing today, Brett? I'm doing good. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. We love having people back, especially people who write brilliant books that we absolutely love, like Difficult Men. Um, Thank you. One of our favorites, for sure, of all the books we featured. And um, one of the ones that like made us feel confident that we could do non-sports stuff, too. Good. Yeah, Good. you know, it's like we took a chance. Like, oh, we don't have to always read sports books. We don't always have to talk about sports on here. And uh, I think the success of that month and the interview with you just kind of gave us confidence to to do that. So it's great to have you back. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, I I don't know why I didn't try to have you back sooner. Uh, I'm sure I thought about it, but I was just reading. You did an update, I think, on your website a few weeks ago uh, with some stuff that you had recently published and I, I was reading your your piece that you did with john ham and i was thinking about the end of mad men and uh what you had written in your book about television and kind of reached out and you were like well i'm not really on that beat anymore but i'd love to come back on and i was like i don't worry about that like 
you know, I don't want to grill you about uh, the nuances of TV, but um, someone who spends as much time uh, working on a book, I know how much effort and time and energy goes into a book uh, about TV, about the shows that you feature, the anti-hero. When you step back from it, what does step back really mean? Like, do you just... That's a good question. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, Uh, go ahead. No, I think that's better. Let's leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was hard. I mean, you know, the thing is that uh, when you do these days, um, you know, there's two ways to do it. If you if you could do a book like the one I did, you could sort of become TV guy, you know, afterwards and, and sort of, and, and maybe, frankly, the, the book may have sold better if I'd done that. Um, and, you know, and it's certainly a good, might have been a good, a better career move in some ways to um, to just stay on that beat and become the TV guy and tweet about TV all the time and, and keep up with it. Um but the truth of the matter is that I was never really the TV guy. I, I was a, a generalist and a journalist that found what I thought was a fascinating cultural story and uh, and then you know, dove into it for a time. Um, I was always aware that I hadn't watched the most TV of anybody out there or anywhere close. Um, there's a lot of voices out there um, literally, you know, recapping every minute of every show uh, out there. And... Um, and, you know, that's sort of, when you're a magazine writer, which is what I, I was and, and am still, um, you work on something intensely, and then you, you move on to the next thing. And, and a book is, for me, has, it turned out sort of temperamentally was about the same thing, where, where I, um, I certainly spent a lot of time talking about TV uh, in, the, in the days after, that, uh, after the book was published, and when the paperback came out, and when foreign editions came out, I've, I've been, it's done really well, weird, weird places like Brazil and and uh in france um but uh but my mind was a little bit elsewhere already at that point um the other thing that happened is that when you don't have to watch television for your job anymore it's the most beautiful thing in the world um because it's you know it's, it's an old but completely true thing that you know if you want to ruin something you love um make it your job and so for the first i mean it's really only in the last year or so that i've you know been able to go back to diving into a series and and um you know I, I really only wanted to watch baseball and game of thrones which wasn't in my book for that first year um i couldn't my threshold for diving in and, and kind of getting involved in, in, in any of the shows that, that were really good but would would have been a, a real emotional and, and artistic investment uh i just it just didn't seem fun to me um at all for a while um so so it's been nice in the last six months or so to come back a little bit, kind of as a civilian instead of a, uh, a professional TV watcher, and get into things like I'm watching Home Catch Fire now on AMC, you know, without which is not a show that is that, that gets anywhere near the the heights of the shows that that I wrote about. I don't think I think it's but it but it's really good and really entertaining, and it's fun to be able to watch that without the burden of of, of having a, a real opinion on it, you know, on every minute of it. Um, and the end of Mad Men felt like a big moment for me too because. That was the last of the shows that I did cover intensely in the book, and uh, I think in some ways it was kind of the end of the difficult man era uh, right. because of that. So that's a long way of saying um, I'm a normal TV watcher now, and it's a it's it's great. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you, sort of answered it, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more. With the show, most of the shows in the book were complete when the book came out, but the few that weren't, did you want to? go back into those worlds to see how they, how the writers decided to conclude them, how the paths of the difficult men ended. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, really, the two were Breaking Bad and, um, and Breaking Man Bad and Mad right. Men, and uh, it, it happened that I got to profile Brian Cranston um, and, to some extent, go back and visit with Vince Gilligan um, as that finale approached, um, which was great. Uh, I was actually in the editing room when they were working on the, uh, or not, they weren't working on it, but I saw frames of the finale and talked to them right on the verge of the ending there. Um, so that was that felt very natural as a kind of extension of the book. Um, and then I got to, as you, you mentioned, I got to spend time with John Hamm, which was particularly kind of full circle for me because really before the book, uh, before Difficult Minute ever happened, I, I did uh, John Hamm's first GQ cover. In fact, I think his first national cover at all. It was both my first magazine cover, uh, first cover of wow. GQ and, and his first major magazine cover um, right when... Uh, Mad Men's first season had ended, and so he his story really hadn't been told. He was still um, by you know real unknown in Hollywood, um, and I certainly didn't have a lot of experience with that. And that really put me on the path. It was only after that that I started to think maybe there's a real story here. So so it felt very nice to kind of go back visit with him um, and sort of usher out this era that had had really become a, a pretty big part of my life. Obviously by the end. You know, one really cool thing I thought about with Mad Men ending is, uh, and it's really any time a big show ends, it happened with Breaking Bad as well. Uh, we're obsessed with the finales, right? Like, we take these 65 to 100 episode series or whatever they are, and we painstakingly analyze the finale of it uh, more so than almost any other episode in the series. And I noticed that uh, during the time we were doing this with Mad Men, and I say we as kind of mean us as like a culture, uh, during Mad Men, it seemed like there was a renewed sort of appreciation for the Sopranos finale. Um, initially, I think it was really mixed, uh, the opinions, and I feel like as time has gone on, as we've gotten away from it, um, there's been a new appreciation for it. When you look back at all the finales of the show's uh, of of the shows that you featured in the book, how do you feel about them, and how do you feel in general about uh, the way we painstakingly agonize over these uh, periods in the in the shows? Yeah, it's funny you say. I mean, I would go one step further and say that we 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 painstakingly agonize over the last thirty seconds right. um, of the shows. I mean, does anybody even remember the rest of the Mad Men finale? You know, it starts out he's in the desert. Driving, you know, cars in the, in the, the salt flats, um, and you know, really, it, it comes down to this. You know, you take this this vast canvas, and really, all everybody wanted to talk about was the Coke commercial. And I think it was. I thought it was. A, I loved the ending. I, I was very yeah, moved I like by it. Too. I thought it yeah. was. Uh, I thought it was terrific. Um, but it is true that 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 all the things you like about these shows, um, their ambiguity, their you know wide canvas. The um, you know the, the way that they emulate real life, the the, the kind of grand uh, kind of you know literature of them, you know it, it all comes down to these questions of is he going to die or is he not going to die? Um, is he good? Is he bad? You know, and and it's all the things all the things that make it great are exactly the kinds of things that um, that we uh, throw out in in wanting to in anticipating these last moments. Um, so I think that's just a natural. I mean, I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it, it is definitely noticeable to me. Um, I agree that uh, that in keeping with what I just said, I spent a lot of time during the last 
season of, of Mad Men, you know, sort of truncated few episode series uh, season, um, thinking about how good the episodes leading up to the finale of The Sopranos were. Um, the, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there were several standalone before the mechanics and kind of machinery of the story got cooking. There were a few really um, overtly sort of cinematic standalone episodes where oh, Bobby yeah. Boxall goes and has to do his first kill. Yep. Um, there was one with Junior in the nursing home. Um, there was, uh, I think it was Johnny Sack. Um, Johnny Sack dies of cancer. Um, I'm forgetting another one that was very... And, and they, they were terrific. And they had this kind of... And, and then once the once the ending started to kind of crank into up to speed... Um, I remember being completely seized by suspense and, and really like this great sense of, of, you know, rushing towards an ending. I'm not actually sure that Mad Men succeeded in that. As much as I like those last moments, I actually think the season was, was um, a little disorganized. There were great, great moments, but I didn't necessarily love the entire season. Um, but I always, to get back, to, I'm sorry, I'm rambling all over. No, the go, but, go. But, but I will say that I agree that... Um, I always liked The Sopranos ending. I always thought that uh, I was as surprised by everybody as anybody, of course, um, when it happened. I thought my TV broke. I think that was unfortunate. But I always thought, you know, very quickly I came to think that it was the only possible ending for that show, that that the, that, that David Chase had created a, a situation where um, in order to stay faithful to his uh, ideas about what life is like and what art is like, um, you know, had really didn't have a lot of options and had found a very ingenious, moving, uh, obviously memorable way to do it. Um, and that was, uh, I would say it was about 50-50 back when it aired, if you remember. I yeah. mean, people were outraged. And I do think it's come, I think other people have come to share my, my view of that. I think it's come to be seen as, as, as a really... Um, uh, as the only ending that show could have, and and really emblematic of the kind of television, um, you know that I that I wrote about this golden age. Um, you know, in terms of other ones, uh, you know, there were ones that were brilliant, and and in some ways, you know, the shields gets talked about all the time. I agree, it's uh, it was its own kind of perfect ending for for that show. Um, um, you know, did you think uh, did you think Walter was dead? In the Breaking Bad finale, did I think he was dead? Yeah, like, like that's. Think that, it was a fantasy sequence. Yeah, that's been like a, a a real popular theory that's been picking up steam lately. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I I like that ending. Uh, I don't think that's the ending Vince Gilligan put on the screen. Right. But I like that ending. I mean, I, I that um uh, I think you know I haven't been paying attention to anything that's that's sort of been going on lately. But uh, it was Emily Nussbaum with the New Yorker, I think suggested that he dies in the car at the beginning right. yeah. he freezes to death. And you know what that was that that, that was perhaps you know beautifully authored alternate ending that I don't think was on screen. Um <laughs> you know I I do I feel like after I have felt this way in, in each of these cases um that I believe in these shows as um as as the product of of um a vision and um i my role is to um you know is to if if the artist has has earned my trust and earned my attention for all this time then i i genuinely don't have an opinion of what it should be i just want to watch it 
Um, you know, that's a, I always thought it was a very odd question uh, uh, coming up to the end, as though we were watching sports. You know, how do you want it to end? Who do you want to win? Right, who's going to um, get the trophy? And, and you don't do that in a novel. You don't do that in, in a, you really don't do it in a film. Um, and I don't see why you necessarily do it in TV. Um, Brian Cranston, when I asked him, you know, um, uh, I think it was Brian Cranston, I said, you know, um, how did you think it should end, I guess? I'm trying to remember if he knew at the time that I talked to him. And his answer was, um, however Vince Gilligan wants it to end. And I kind of agree with that. Um, so so uh, even though there are other endings that I might have imagined uh, for Walter that, that other people might imagine that I might have even thought were more consistent with my view of the show, um, I uh, consumed what, you know, I, 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 was, um, I was willing to go. He had earned my, the right to take me wherever he wanted to go at that point, and, and I found it satisfying. Yeah, it's really interesting that we allow these guys to take us through this long journey, and, but then at the end, it's like, okay, you're good. Now let me tell you how you should end it. You did a great job right. up to this point, but I'm going to have to cut and you off right there. In a case like that where you know, the entire show had drawn its strength and from the fact that, that you can't tell if he's good or bad, that he's both, you know, well, I mean, obviously you can tell he was bad, but that you're sympathetic to him despite the fact that he's bad, that, you, that, you, um, that you're, you're caught in this, this tension of rooting for somebody who's obviously turned evil. Um, and then in the end, you want him to be punished. You know, people were upset, oh, he's, you know, he was redeemed too much. It's, you know, it's the, whole, the whole idea of this kind of television, what, what, what makes it so great is the ambiguity. And uh, we don't like ambiguity in endings. Endings are weird. Endings are unnatural in TV. This is part of the problem, as I think I said in the book. There's nothing more unnatural than, than, a, series, uh, than, than a television series ending, because if, it's, if it has the ratings... Uh, it goes on. You make it go on forever, and if it doesn't, it disappears. Right. So it's this weird new thing about having to end the show, um, and I think we're still kind of feeling our way through it. Was the other Sopranos episode you were thinking of either either the uh, Cleaver premiere or the uh, the wedding for Johnny Sack's daughter? That was the, the, the well. There was the wedding. I can't remember. I know there were. They, it really was. Um, yeah, I mean, I do remember both of those. I, I, I'm remembering Johnny Sack in the hospital. I think it was called Stage Three or something like that with cancer. Um, and but you know what? It's, I mean, look at how long ago we're talking about now. I know. Um, so it gets confusing. I I do remember. I, I found the um, and then uh, Junior has this relationship with a, a younger Asian patient in the hospital who turns violent. Does that ring a bell? Right. Yep. The, um, the Asian kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean the fact that some of this is so vivid in my mind, you know, and I haven't really watched, rewatched the some, you know, I, I rewatched selectively as I was getting writing the book. But um, anyway, I think that those were terrific. I thought that last six, I thought the weakest part of the Sopranos was the first half of that season, right? Quote, six unquote, part one, know, the two thousand six with um, Johnny Cakes and all that, right? Uh, and then I thought that the last uh, run of six to eight shows, whatever it was, were, was was. Uh, was really very good, and I and I and I think um, just to go back to what you where you started, I I think people were right whether they thought about it or not in thinking that Mad Men in some way you know in thinking about the Sopranos when Mad Men was ending because Mad Men was in so many ways really the heir to that show uh, both literally in you know Matt Weiner coming out of David Chase's uh, right. writers room and in terms of its view of the world its view of storytelling its view of of, of of the relationship between the show and its audience. And um, it's always good that this product, whatever this product gets remembered, uh, that's a good thing, I think. 
Let me ask you one more thing uh, about this, and we'll change gears and finish up. Uh, when you look back at Difficult Men, kind of the whole run, whether it's uh, starting with the idea and then pitching the book and then writing the book, uh, the the supporting the hardcover, the paperback, just the whole process, and you were ready to transition into the next book, what were the... What was the biggest thing or the main things that you took from that first experience that you think will make the next experience either better or more fulfilling or whatever it might be? Yeah, well, you'd wish, you know, I, I would I would love to be able to say that, you know, I learned everything I needed to know and, and that this one is, is coming easily. And, and the fact of the matter is I wish that there'd been more carryover. I mean, it's an incredibly difficult thing. Um I guess I am aware now that when it feels, uh, somehow, somewhere in my brain, I know that at the, the moments, and there are many, when um, I feel completely overwhelmed by the amount of material, have no idea what the story is I want to tell, uh, feel like it's all been said before, um, and so on and so forth, that, that at least there's a part of me that knows that, that you can get it done in the end, and that, you know, a coherent kind of story will come out of it. Um, but, um, but you know, each time it's kind of like climbing that mountain over again. Uh, other writers maybe perhaps don't feel that way, but I'm not very good at learning, apparently. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it is it is like, especially if you're not trying to do the same thing again, which I'm not, um, you wind up uh, kind of having to learn the damn lessons over and over again. Sort of the same question, but different. When you look back, was there a minute or a thing where you're like, "Oh, that was awesome! I'm so glad I wrote that <laughs> book because it allowed me this moment." Besides being on this show, which I know that's yeah, yeah obviously, that's good, uh, yeah. I went, I went down to to, uh, to Rio, and I walked into a room, and and, and there was at the largest. TV station in Rio, TV network that, that controls like all the media. Basically, there's this massive banner with my name on it behind, you know, um, behind the stage. Uh, that was like, that was a little fun. Um, in a more serious way, um, yeah. I mean, it was received really well. I felt I felt good about it. I, I mean, I, you know, it was nice. Uh, it was nice to have that. You know, not everybody gets. Uh, I got very lucky in in getting the kind of coverage I got. Uh, a lot of people write really great books and no one reads them, um, or at least no one writes about them. Um, and I don't know how many people read mine, but a lot of people wrote about it at the time. And uh, and it's nice to take that kind of victory tour, you know? I think, I mean, I think it coincided with uh, something in the culture that, that was, you know, it was gratifying to be, um, to to get the sense that I'd caught on to something either by accident or by purpose, uh, you know, that, that people re- resonated with people. That was, um, uh, um, it was important to people. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's pretty Pollyannish answer, I guess. But, My dog loves that answer. But, but it's nice, you know, it, yeah. it is nice. Um, it's, uh, it goes quickly, but it's, uh, it's nice to have done. The sportscasters are here with Brett Martin, uh, GQ correspondent, author. Uh, when I wrote you, you said, you know, you're not really on that beat anymore. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what beat he's on. And uh, I don't know if you're officially a food writer per se, but you do have a book coming out soon called Fuck You, Eat This, which I love. And you just had an amazing uh, piece that you sent me the link to. I'm so grateful you did. Uh, a, just this incredible story about 
a French chef and a failed relationship. And I, I saw someone tweeted you something like, um, if you like feelings and food and I, I don't know what else they're like, you'll love this. And I thought that was so perfect. But um, so is that your is that your beat? Is it food? Is that are you a food writer per se now? Is that where you're focusing your time and your efforts? Well, well it's something that I had done more. Of, I had done. I've done throughout. I, I've mm. been writing about foods for almost 20 years now, and, and in fact, throughout the writing of Difficult Men, we're still doing food stuff for um, for GQ and elsewhere, Bon Appetit. And so, yes, yeah, so it's a little more naturally in my wheelhouse. Um, I, 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 um, I come to it with a, with a couple, really almost a couple decades of experience. Um, in, in some ways, um, Fuck You Eat This is, uh, is the story of a generation of chefs who have undergone a creative revolution, uh, very much like the one in in uh, Difficult Men, um, who, you know, you have this situation, and perhaps even more dramatic, in which being a chef used to mean um, uh, essentially toiling in, in obscurity, uh, being a, a workman, a tradesman, a very talented one, but, but essentially a, a tradesperson, um, and in the last 20 years, much much like working on television shows used to be, um, you traded money for you know working in this debased uh, world in which nobody you know thought good work could be done. And um, in the last 20 years in, in the kitchen, that has completely changed to the point where uh, chefs are now regarded as as artists, really artists, philosophers, environmentalists, public intellectuals, um, you know, uh, celebrities of all kinds. And so. Much like Difficult Men was about a generation that had lived through that transformation and, and sort of figured out how to take advantage of it and, and how to adapt themselves to it. That's what this book is about also. It's about the chefs who were caught up in this transformation and how they dealt with it. Um, and, uh, and so, and in fact, it could probably be called Difficult Men. So I think of it as a sequel in many ways, even though it's not about the entertainment world. It's, it's a sequel about what, what interests me most, which is how, how art and commerce combine, how, uh, the artist functions in the world of, uh, in the real world and, uh, and how they take advantage of opportunities. So, so it is a book about food and food is, is, is a major subject of mine. It's something that I write about it. This essay, uh, as I, as you mentioned about Jaffa Pan is, uh, you know, was, a, was, was an important one for me. Um, I write about restaurants pretty frequently, but this book is, um, hopefully it'll be as interesting and, and frankly, the uh, you know the kinds of stories that come out of a kitchen uh, are very different than a writer's room, but they're pretty much as as uh, as, as charged with emotion and and uh, I hope they're, they're as entertaining as the TV ones were. When you're writing about TV or about a restaurant or food or whatever, it, there's a level of uh, yourself that you can keep out of it. When you write the essay that you wrote and shared with me the other day. It's there's a very very personal aspect of it. How was it putting yourself out there like that? Uh, it's, you know, I've always used the first person, not so much in that book, but um, but in my magazine writing, I, I have um, uh, my magazine writing often takes the the form of my journey through a subject or or, or with a person. Um, so I've used the first person a lot. But you're right that I had. There's a big difference, big difference between using the first person to be funny, to, you know... Um, Talk to, about to, enjoying to, the loaf of bread or whatever. Yeah, yeah. versus, you know, and there are, it is a pretty raw one, this one. And it did feel, on the eve of it going up on the website, 
I felt a certain amount of, um, holy shit, um, <laughs> pardon my, no, I don't no, know what yeah. your standards are. No standards. Um, but, uh, you know, Jesus, it's okay. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, I don't do it gratuitously. I, I, I'm not somebody who shares um, for the sake of sharing. It's not my compulsion. It's, you know, there, there are writers who feel that compulsion, and, and they write beautifully about their lives, you know, their, their most private parts of their lives. It's not part of what I am drawn to do necessarily. But this story meant a lot to me, and, uh, and I cared about it. And, um, uh, and so it was worth that risk. And I've been really blown away. I mean, I, you know, I hate to, to uh, this is not a way of self-promotion to say that, you know, that, that people responded to it in ways that I could not have, uh, you know that, that that I that I only had hoped for. Um, they uh, seem to have struck a chord with with cer- certain people, and they've let me know. And then I feel it feels nice to have taken that risk and be somewhat rewarded for it. Yeah, you know, I was particularly related to the uh, this kind of picture that you painted of being in the basement and kind of hearing mm-hmm. life going on above you. Um, and that's happened to me with my health um, when I've had. Uh, I've had six surgeries in the last 10 years and two of them were particularly difficult. And for me, it was never a lack of like having people who cared about me or supported me or helped me. That was always there, but their lives had to go on too. And I wanted them to go on. Um, I I didn't want to be the reason that they had to miss a shift of work or a class or anything like that. And I always sort of felt like um, I appreciated being the unhealthy one because to me it meant that my younger brother, uh, my younger brothers could, would sort of not have to do it. Like I believed that. Like okay, I'm bearing this burden. So Anthony, you go and be a D1 hockey player at Yale, win a national championship. You know, my other brother, you know, start your career. All those things that I took some comfort in that. But I did have always had those moments where you're there just doing your thing and recovering, and life is going on uh, above you. And and that I I just I felt I felt your experience in that when you were talking about living in your friend's place and, and just mm-hmm. feeling life going on. And, uh, yeah, it was very okay. relatable. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, what, what, what different people respond to. What's your health problem? Oh, I have Crohn's disease, which is a bust, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, um, so it started sort of, um, rarely, I guess in my appendix. And right. when my appendix ruptured, uh, the disease, sort of took form in a very lower part of my intestines, which I've had reconstructed twice now. And then like a sort of a fallout of the original um, problem, I I eventually had to get my gallbladder removed and I ended up with like a hiatal hernia. I had to have that done. So I've had a bunch of different things, but certainly the bowel resectionings were the uh, life-changing ones. You know, anyone can have their gallbladder taken out and bounce back and in three or four days, and I certainly did as well. But uh, having 14 centimeters of your colon taken out, that's a different level, mm. sort of, you know. Yeah. Are yeah. you stable now? Yeah, right now, I mean, I am not in remission, per se. I have, uh, you know, symptoms, but um, nothing debilitating, you know. And, uh, you know, I get treatments okay. now. Uh, it was a long – it's a really hard thing to, to officially um, diagnose. A lot of people walk around saying they have Crohn's because – they're told they are, and they probably do, but a lot of times they won't get the treatment that they need because 
Uh, they don't like to start the infusions unless it's really officially like medically diagnosed, uh, which involves like having to take stuff out. So until they did the last bowel resectioning, I wasn't actually officially diagnosed with it. So that's a frustrating part of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Brett Martin is at Twitter. He's at Brett Martin, uh, which is amazing that that was available. Um, for you, I'm glad. <laughs> I was fairly early. I don't remember exactly <laughs> when, but I was early enough to get that, yeah. BrettMartin.org is his website, which is a great spot to find all of his stuff. He posts links, although sometimes uh, not as promptly as someone who's looking for No, I'm, I'm actually like. really bad about it. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, uh, it's, um, yeah I'm, I, this was a nice incentive to go back in and, and add some stuff. I'll let you go on this. You live in New Orleans, which is a great city to live in for food, for sure. And I'm sure someone uh, who's traveled the world covering it knows that one of the greatest cities for food in the world is Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, yes, of course. And um, I, I say I, that. I have never been to Buffalo, oh. personally, but I, I have my list already of specialties. I have a big, big, obviously, wings. I need to go to Anchor Bar at some point or another. No, 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 um, no, stop. No. Are you not? Or is Anchor, like, for only for the tourists? Yeah, Anchor Bar is, you know, the that's hack. You know, that's hack. Uh, yeah, all right, all right, yeah. I get it. All right, well, then you have to take... You know what, I, I completely understand because people go come here and, you know, they pick their boy's shop that's, you know, the most famous. And, right. So, fair enough. Um, I have been to Rochester. I had a girlfriend in Rochester. I think we might have talked about this. Rochester's got that whole other, like, sticky, sweet wings thing going on, like yeah. sweetie, Terrible. which is mm-hmm. horrific, but totally different yeah. kind of thing. Um, uh, and I need beef on whack at some Ooh, point. Yes. So, and and uh, Salem's char-grilled hot dogs. I mean, you need to really make a point to come here. It would be professional. Yeah. You can write about I don't even have. I don't even have warm clothes anymore. I can't even come, like, nine, ten and a half months out of the year, I can't come to Buffalo. Mm-hmm. In my mind, you are, it's like going to, you know, Siberia. You would love it here in the fall. It would be or the spring. It would be a break from the monotonous the monotony of the heat there. And uh-huh. it wouldn't be too shocking to your system. You know, you would come here on a sixty five degree day in the fall and be like, Wow, if Buffalo could be this weather every single day, fifty yeah. million people would live here. Unfortunately it's like forty days, not three hundred and sixty five, but I mean if you came right. in the fall or the springtime, oh and I would take I would take you to restaurants. I mean, because people just think Buffalo it's wings, right? And of course that's the yeah. number one seed. But we have, you know, if if Buffalo was a region in the NCAA tournament, like uh you know, one of the brackets, we would mm-hmm. be deep. It wouldn't just be like chicken wings would dance to the final four. They would have yeah, a yeah. really tough matchup in that eight nine game. You know what I mean? So, I, I believe you. I'm, I'm ready to go deep on, uh, on Buffalo for sure. I, I mean, I, I I buy it. I mean, and uh, and you know, uh, I am a New York uh, steeder. Yeah, uh, I've been to Rochester. I've driven through uh, past the falls on the way to, to Chicago, going up and over into, to get to Chicago through, through Ontario. Is that Ontario? Mm-hmm. There? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I am in on um, Buffalo, and I'll, I'll come sometime. Anything else you want to uh, put out there? BrettMartin.org, at BrettMartin on Twitter. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, Difficult no, man. No, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, that, that, uh, that story that you mentioned is, is on GQ.com. Yep, and I tweeted um, it, and I'll tweet it again, too, um, for our listeners. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, keep, 
give me a call back and we'll catch up in a year or so. Okay, loved it. Thanks so much, Brad. Talk to you soon. All right. All right. I appreciate it. that I think is unique at Fredonia is the level of creativity that's brought to every discipline. I really decided on Fredonia because I was able to get into a program where I was able to adapt and do things right away. We want to bring the classroom into the world in some ways, but bring the world into the classroom through technology. I really learned from quality professors. Our next guest is from Cooperstown, New York, and is a graduate of SUNY Fredonia. He's the main man of Vsauce 2, working for YouTube, and also does his own videos about video games and making things happen as a Fredonia alum. It's his first time on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Kevin Lieber. What's going on, Kevin? Not much. Thanks for having me. What, what was that Fredonia commercial? Where did you get that? All right, so here's the thing. Usually we bring people into their fight songs, right, which which tends to be very cool because, first of all, people love it, you know, like especially someone who, you know, let's say they went to, I don't know, Harvard, and they're just a huge Harvard mark, and, you know, you play their fight song for them, and they, it just gets them in a real nice and endearing mood. Well... Obviously, the the negative to that is then you have someone on who, like us, went to Fredonia or some other D three school or a smaller college, and they don't have one, so you have to get creative. So usually, what we do is <laughs> usually what we do is use music we're not allowed to use and just you know play cat or mouse with the cease and desist letters. Um, although we, <laughs> we haven't gotten one yet, so uh, that's probably a bad thing for us. But um, <laughs> probably not saying much about us that we haven't received one yet considering all the music we don't have permission to use but um yeah so i was like okay i know i'm not gonna be able to find this but let me look so i typed into youtube you know suny fredonia fight song and i found this really amazingly cheesy commercial that they made to i guess try to hype the school so i played some of that into uh like i said music we don't own to um to bring you in so that was fun <laughs> yeah, it's very fitting. I definitely never heard that before. <laughs> I didn't know uh, Fredonia had commercials like that, but yeah. I guess the Blue Devils weren't cool enough to get a fight song, huh? We're getting a lot of buzz right now, though, because this kid on Big Brother is a Fredonia student, a current Fredonia student. Oh, I had no idea. I'm not up on the uh, reality news. <laughs> yeah, well, so this kid, he, I think... I've noticed this over the years. I, I enjoy Big Brother. I watch it with my wife usually every summer. Something to do over the summer, and because nothing's on anymore, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I've noticed over the years that a lot of times they wear their college gear because it just must be like with licensing, it just must be allowed or something to be, to be on TV, you know. And this kid goes to Fredonia, so he always has a Fredonia shirt and a, this black FSU hat says Blue Devils on the back. He's a major dork, though. He's like a music major, and 
He's been nominated both weeks so far because the girls are real creeped out by him because he's like socially awkward and he just like shows up in rooms. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically perfect. It's a yeah. perfect representation of Fernando. Yeah. So I mentioned it before we brought you on that we actually went to college together and we actually met in this class called Multimedia Integration. Do you remember this class? I do. Yeah, I didn't remember the name of it, but I was just talking to someone about that class recently because of the software that we used. Yeah, what was that uh, called? Director. Director, okay. Macromedia Director, which doesn't exist and hasn't exist. I, I existed, I think, since we were in college. Do you happen to recall how awful I was at operating that software? Oh, I think we all were. It was very, it was very clunky. I don't, I don't remember you in particularly being much worse than anyone else. Well, I wouldn't expect you to necessarily remember that, except for the fact that the first time we had to present our work, mine was so clearly worse than everybody's that I remember when I played it, like everyone was just staring at me in silence, like with this, oh my God, what the hell? Is that look? I, I, it was just a tra- traumatic moment for you. Oh my god! I don't know. Maybe if we should have a therapy session about this. No, I laughed it off because, like, sort of ignorantly, I kind of took pride in knowing absolutely nothing about the class and the program. You know, like I thought I was kind of too cool for it in a way, like this kind of cocky college arrogance. I was just like, yeah, I know nothing about this, and I'm so happy. But then. <laughs> As the seconds wore on in the awkward silence, I was like, okay, I better learn how to do something. I don't want to stand up here and be this embarrassed ever again. So I got all right at it. I made this – we had to make something like for the end, maybe a game or something. And I, I made this game called Shit, I'm Dead or something like that. And each board of the game was a list of people and you had to drag them to the cemetery if they were dead and you needed to leave the alive person on there. And if you drag the Alive guy in, it would play like the clip of the song Alive by Pearl Jam to alert you that you screwed up. <laughs> you just had to work you had to work Pearl Jam into it somehow. Yeah, I think I did like every project. But I don't know. Anyway, we met in that class and so that that that, that is not gonna help anyone in the future, I guess, huh? Since that that uh they did a whole class like a 300-level class worth three credits on that, and it doesn't even exist anymore? No, and, and what's funny is there's plenty of software that we could have learned instead that we would have actually been able to use that still exists, like Flash or Premiere or any number of, of, of software um, programs. But, yeah, we I don't know who decided that. I don't know where that came from to use to do Director, but that entire company got swallowed up by adobe it does, they don't even exist at all in macromedia i yeah, don't think and i'm almost positive that professor is dead as well really yeah i'm almost positive was her name k something right k mcdonough yeah i'm pretty sure she died of cancer or something like that ah. yeah joe oh my God. joe joe chilberg told me that it was ah. communications oh, professor man. as well yeah so that class is uh is um yeah, it's that, just a memory, yeah, yeah. For, in every way. Gosh. Yeah. So the cool thing about meeting you at the class is that – and meeting anyone at college really is that um, you went on and you did something cool. Like the rest of the people in the class, maybe some of them have done something cool, but as far as I know, and I'm including myself in this, we're a bust pretty much. 
But you, on the other hand, you've went out there in the world and pretty interesting life. I mean, you, you work for YouTube. You have a channel on YouTube that has 3 million subscribers. When we get 3,000 downloads of one of the episodes of this podcast, I like to do a victory lap in my backyard. You have 3 million subscribers to your channel. Tell us a little bit about Vsauce and being hired by YouTube. Like, how, Let's start with that. Like, How did you become someone who was hired by YouTube to run a channel? Uh, well, basically, um, Vsauce was created by Michael Stevens. So if you just type in Vsauce, you're, you're going to come up with, with Michael and, and his channel, which is Vsauce One. And he actually found my videos. I was making videos in my spare time, um, just working days a week doing restaurant gigs and then making videos literally whenever I wasn't at work. And uh, Michael had just created Vsauce. He found my videos. Vsauce was a collaborative channel, so a bunch of different people contributed to it. And he asked me if I wanted to contribute to it as well. I said yes. Um, we put up a few of my videos, which I know that you've seen before, my old videos, and they bombed horribly. Uh, people hated them. So uh, instead of quitting making videos because I, I couldn't do that, uh, I just, uh, I'm a compulsive creator in a lot of ways, which I think has been part of the success is that I don't stop making things. Um, I just became obsessed with figuring out how to make videos people wanted to watch, really. And Vsauce eventually adapted from originally being a video game comedy channel to being more informational and educational and uh, science-based. So that's primarily the, the type of content that I create now on Vsauce 2 is a lot of science stuff. So every video I kind of do a, a research paper on whatever the topic is and then make it as entertaining as possible um, in video form for people to watch. So basically so, Vsauce was popular enough that they wanted a Vsauce 2 and then eventually a Vsauce 3 and you were the guy that stepped in to do Vsauce 2. Yeah, because I didn't go away. Uh, basically, uh, everyone else who was contributing to Vsauce at the time that I started just kept doing their own thing. And I pretty much stopped making videos for my own channel for the most part and just kept sending Michael videos uh, to put up on Vsauce. And, you know, he and I eventually started evolving the content to the point where it just got more and more popular. Um, and became less subjective because the thing about comedy on YouTube that's really hard is that YouTube is on the internet, which is a global audience. So comedy is typically very subjective. Um, senses of humor range <laughs> wildly, not only between, you know, groups of friends, but also actually all over the world. So it's hard to do comedy for the entire world and have everybody think that your joke is funny because it just doesn't even make sense that it would work that way. Right. So we kind of stopped doing jokes and started just talking about facts and things that weren't really subjective. Now, did you stick around there to do that because you thought that something more could come out of it, like a full-time job at YouTube, or did you just do it because you were enjoying it and you were, like you said, you're a compulsive creator and you just enjoyed the creative aspects and then like the whole career part of it was maybe a bonus? Yeah, I mean, I would be creating videos anyway. I was creating, I made probably 200 videos 
before I ever contributed to Vsauce. So I'd be doing that either way. Um, but what kept me going with Vsauce was an audience. You know, on right. my personal channel, I think at that time I had probably maybe a couple thousand subscribers. And um, Vsauce had 30,000, had like 27 or 30,000 when I first uh, decided to, to, to join. And that was just like an astronomical number to me. I was like, oh my gosh, this, this has a lot of people watching it. And that's because it was part of another channel. Uh, originally, uh, Michael was working for a channel called Barely Political, which was kind of like the first really popular YouTube channel that was creating original content, or at least one of them. And um, Michael split off from Barely Political, and they did like a shout-out on Barely Political, like, hey, Michael's starting this new channel, Vsauce. So a lot of the audience trickled down from Barely Political to Vsauce in the beginning. Hmm. Now so That's kind of the story there. Right. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to me as I was going through Vsauce and, and your videos and, and watching videos, the different – you have a bunch of different shows uh, that have series of videos. And it's not that anyone couldn't watch the videos, but it does feel like the target of the videos is maybe to a little bit of a younger audience, the way that they tend to be educational in nature – uh, maybe the way they're designed. I, I could be wrong. And again, it's not that anyone couldn't watch them. It's not like someone would turn them on and be like, ah, oh, this is for a 12-year-old. I'm out of here. It's not that at all, but just felt that way. But it got me wondering, like, so you, it's time to make a video. And I don't know, maybe they want you to do three, four a week, one a week, whatever it is. Do you have, like, editors or people who are saying, hey, let's try this? Or are you on your own to come up with the ideas for the content? Like, how does the idea for a video originate? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much totally on my own um, with, with almost all aspects of creating these videos, um, as is Michael on Vsauce 1 and um, Jake on Vsauce 3. We do have uh, Jake and I share a production assistant who will help with some research and um, we'll help with some edits and stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's really us doing all of the work. And, and as far as coming up with ideas, um, I don't know. It's stuff that we're interested in. It's stuff, stuff that I think is really cool. And then hopefully, you know, I can present it in a way that other people are, will think is cool. Right now I'm, I'm researching cyborgs. Um, one of the shows that I do is called Mind Blow, and it's just the latest in science and technology news because I noticed that you don't hear a lot of the crazy scientific breakthroughs that are going on around the world on CNN or on your Facebook feed. Um, I guess science news just isn't that cool. Other stuff drowns it out. So I like to, to kind of compile it all into a video series that I do to say, hey, this is really amazing breakthroughs going on in science all around the world every single day. So part of that is over the last few years, I've noticed this progression towards bionics and cybernetics and basically humans becoming cyborgs. And there are a lot of cyborgs around us today and will be a lot more in the future. Yeah, my wife. So I've been researching the heck out of that just to 
uh, make a video about that because I think it's really cool. <laughs> Do you guys have a chance to understand who's watching the videos? Did, have you done like a demographic study or has YouTube provided one where you get a sense of what your target audience is or who's watching these videos the most? Yeah, I mean, uh, YouTube provides analytics. Um, so you can go into your analytics and you can see age demographics. You can see where they are around the world. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to lie, it's mostly men, it's mostly boys. Um, but the, the age range is pretty all over the map, which I am proud of that. I mean, I wish that more girls were, were interested in our videos, um, but for whatever reason, they're, they're not. It's only, like, honestly, about 12% girls. Wow. But um, the age range is, is, like I said, all over the map. I have pretty much just as many, you know, 25 to 34-year-old men as I do, like, 40 to 60. So there is, just to illustrate that, I had uh, a really funny instance a couple of years ago at VidCon, which is a very popular, it's, it's basically the biggest YouTube convention every year. And I was with one of my YouTube friends, and this 12-year-old girl came up to my friend and was like, oh, my gosh, I love your videos. And then her dad <laughs> really wanted to meet me. Uh, that, was, that was flattering. I was like, this is awesome. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I, I, I'd rather have the dad in, in some ways. It's, it's a little more, I don't know, fulfilling sort of in a way, in a weird way. And less potentially illegal. Um, you... Uh, <laughs> No, just a joke, but you, um, like YouTube, obviously, you're a part of the YouTube organization. You're not an independent person doing this on your own, even though there's people doing that very successfully. I think I read an article today about someone who made like $7 million off of his YouTube page last year, I think talking about video games too, but is there a pressure like to make sure that you're creating content that's viewed enough for YouTube to monetize this? Like if you put out a video and it bombs and doesn't doesn't do many hits, like, is that a pressure or do you kind of live just enough under the radar that it's like, they know that, Hey, they got the subscribers and it's just not micromanaged to that level. It's not micromanaged to that level at all. Um, yeah. a lot of what, what we're able to do at Vsauce is kind of experiment with content and, um, uh, that's a luxury that a lot of other YouTubers don't really have. You know, I've a lot of independent YouTubers recently who say, you know, the only thing I can do is just keep cranking out easy videos so that I can get an upload out there every single day. And it's not really creatively fulfilling or satisfying, but I have to do it in order to get the views in order to, you know, pay my rent. Um, we don't really rely on that as much. We are able to kind of sit back and, you know, if we don't put out a video for a few weeks, that's okay. You know, it doesn't mean we're not working on a video that long. We are. I think that if you watch some of our content, if you watch a few of Jake's recent videos from Vsauce 3, you'll see, you know, a lot of man hours and a lot of work go into these videos. And, and I think that translates. And it's kind of a unique thing on YouTube because there's more of a rush and more of a pressure, like you said, to kind of crank out content in order to get views. But, you know, Vsauce just won a Webby. So I think that we are being recognized for 
the amount of um, time and effort and the labor of love that we have for our videos. We talk about time and effort being put into these, and before we talked, you gave me a chance to look at a short film that will be available by the time this goes up. And even compared to the regular work you do, you could tell the kind of uh, higher level of production maybe that went into the film. You want to talk a little bit about it, what went into creating it and producing it, and why it was a little bit more special than what you normally do? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the short film was actually in collaboration with a new channel called Dead. And the purpose of Field Day, it's, a, it's considered an anthology channel. What they do is they only do collaborations. It's run by a fantastically talented uh, production team called First Avenue Machine. And the point of Field Day is to uh, collaborate with top YouTubers and give them an opportunity that they really wouldn't have on their own. So, for instance, uh, Michael from Vsauce One, he flew out to the most remote town in all of Alaska and made like a short documentary with a production team. And you can watch that too. Um, and for me, what I wanted to do is I really just wanted to make, I wanted to go a little bit back to my roots, the kind of content that I made before Vsauce, which was more comedy based. And I wanted to make a short film that involves me interacting with cartoon characters because I just, I've always wanted to do that. So what they did was they had, you know, re business relationships with this animation company and uh, they hooked me up with them and we collaborated on this short film. And it, I mean, it was a couple of, it was like a, almost a three month process for a two minute video. <laughs> right. That's like a minute. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah. No, it was really interesting too, because I, I thought thematically you touched on this idea of like the anxiety of, commenting and you talked about how this thing is on the internet and one thing that we all know about the internet especially anyone who produces any kind of content about it is that way more often people are going to criticize the content than tell like i guess it's just not cool to tell someone hey i really like that or that was good it's a lot more fun maybe to say i always tell this story and the guy gets upset but I don't mean for him to be because he's a really great listener and he does uh, challenge me to be more accurate. But this guy one time, he wrote me on Twitter to complain about how I accidentally called James Harden Joe Harden. And I was like thinking about it and I'm like, well, I don't even remember talking about James Harden on the podcast last week. And I said something to him. He's like, no, no, it's from when you had uh, Jack McCollum on the podcast. And I'm like – when was Jack McCollum on? And it happened to be two years prior. And I was like, oh, wow. oh my God. Like, I called the guy Joe instead of James, which is a sort of easy mistake to make, especially since there's a Joe Harden who plays professional sports as well, who could have been on my mind for some reason. And it kind of followed me two years later. But I don't know. And I thought it was an interesting take on that. It's a, a long, needless story probably to just kind of say is, did you go to that? topic or to that theme because you saw a good joke there or did it was it sort of also self uh fulfilling in the sense that you deal with the anxiety of uploading a video and then waiting to see what the comments might be yeah i mean totally it's it's definitely that you know i've 
the longer that I've been in this business, which is the creation, the the more I'm just kind of getting a little bit um, more and more aware of what it means to to do that and what it means to share yourself online. And it's something that we all kind of don't really think about a lot and take for granted. And there's not a lot being said, I don't think, in art or in online entertainment about what that feels like and the kind of repercussions involved in that. So that's kind of something that I just wanted to touch about just because it's not anything that I see a lot, you know, there isn't like a lot of articles or videos or anything really for those of us who make a living online and, and just kind of the pitfalls um, associated with that. So to, to go back to your point earlier about how people would rather say a negative thing before I ever got into making videos at all, when I was working in a restaurant, when I was a teenager, uh, the owner said, it's so important to make sure that all of the customers that come into the restaurant have a good time because if they have a bad time, they're going to tell seven people about it. If someone has a good experience at the restaurant, they'll only tell two. Right. Now, I don't know where he got that data specifically, but that always resonated with me later on when creating online contact. Cause I was like, you know what? That is really true. It's just something psychological about, us as a species, I guess, where we like complaining more than we like to praise. Yeah, and it's a dilemma too. I can't tell you how many times I've typed out a tweet and then I close it. I don't tweet it and I think there's no need for that. Like, like just for some reason I want to be critical of something and it it's not even necessarily from a place of anger or – like I have an example. So – Someone from The Wire, someone who was like a, a bit character in The Wire, uh, made this documentary um, about kind of leaving acting to raise kids and then getting trying to get back into acting. That was basically the gist of the documentary. And it was, it was really artsy, almost overly artsy. And to me, it just – it stunk. I don't know. I just didn't like it. So at first I was like, okay, do I tweet about this and do I subtweet her because I don't – she only had like, you know, 10,000 followers. I'm like, I know she's going to see this tweet. Do I really want to include her? But then if I don't, like, that's lame. Like, you're going to criticize this person but not even let her know. And then ultimately, I'm like, just, there's just no need for it. Just, I just closed it. I'm like, there's just no need. It's just stupid. You don't want someone to say, hey, that last podcast you put up, it stunk. And, and I know I don't want people to. So I try my hardest to avoid that. But, and I do, people criticize us for being fanboy. Uh, on here and they do on Twitter as well but it's just we make a, a point to be that way because you know I mean one no one's coming on here because they have to you know so we try to treat them nicely and two I just feel like when I like something I try to mention it to people because I'd love for them to mention if they like what I do because I know how that feels good if you know what I mean yeah absolutely rather than just pretending like you don't like something like for for whatever reason, that's a, a preferable listen. <laughs> like, like we all have to be robots without any likes or interest. Uh, I mean, that that seems absurd. And the the other problem with with tweeting your your feelings when you're angry or you know you're feeling emotional is that when you write that down and you send it out there, 
that's just a brief moment of something that you thought that now lives forever, like etched in stone or etched, you know, on the internet. Whereas <laughs> you wake up the next day and you'll be like, man, I don't know why I said that, but, right. <laughs> but there it is now, you know, on the internet forever. And you said it. And I think that that's something that's really fitting for this podcast because of how many athletes get into trouble doing this, mm-hmm. where they'll tweet something out where it's just like, you know what? Clearly this person was in like in the moment it was a fit of rage or whatever was going on. And now, you know, they have to delete their Twitter forever because they had like a moment of, of, of humanity. Like God forbid. <laughs> I have to be so careful during saints games too. Cause I mean, most of our followers are, are on Twitter for sports and they're all there during football on Sundays. You know, everyone has their Twitter open now watching football and I, yeah. I can get, especially last season, was real challenging because I had a certain expectation for the Saints going in that they didn't come close to. I mean, I told a lot of people, and on this podcast, that it's my most hated Saints team as a fan, including all the 3-13 and 13 teams that I rooted for. It's like this team, they just they didn't do anything right, and I hated them. I had to be really careful on Twitter because I would get so angry, um, but I didn't want... I would read them then, like, the next day and think, oh, my God, you're such a child. Like, really? You, <laughs> you, were, you were this upset about it? Like, you know, like, right. oh, you need to reevaluate things probably. And I get, I get that. I can't help it. And the one time, so a couple of years ago, my brother played hockey at Yale. He just graduated. And um, there was a Friday night game. They played Cornell. And um, it was also the night – of Howard Stern's 60th birthday party. So I remember my my other brother and his wife came over and uh my wife was there and we were we had like, you know, the radio on to listen to this Stern party, which was amazing even for non-Stern fans cuz they had like great music and like Train was like a house band and all these different artists played with them and uh, it was great, but so we're listening to that and then my brother's game starts and he scored a goal in the game, and then he hurt his knee in the game. And it was a, it was a really probably a funny scene here because we had this jovial mood, and then like my brother was injured, and we we're like watching him injured, and it's just, like quiet. And then my he goes off, and my other brother's real pissed, and his wife like doesn't get it. She's like, "Why are you so upset?" He's like, "It was brutal." And then Cornell won the game in overtime because. Uh, Yale had scored a goal in regulation that was ruled no goal and they reviewed it and they just missed it because video review can be really bad in college hockey. And I had a still frame of it and I tweeted it. And next thing you know, I'm just in a brawl with all these Cornell, the the entire state of New York. Just like, I'm like, oh my God, this is a, I should not have tweeted. I was way too upset. And, like, the next day I'm reading these fights I have with, like, Cornell Ho- at Cornell Hockey, at Cornell Hockey. I had, like, ten different Twitter fights going on. And I'm just like, oh, man, this was a bad moment. You should not You should have stepped away. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Twitter is, like, a, it's just, like, a weird, this weird reflection of all of us that gets recorded. And, you know, you do have to be careful. <laughs> you definitely do. The Sportscaster here with Kevin Lieber, a very talented guy that I went to college with. You can find out all about him on KevinLieber.com. 
can also follow his videos on Vsauce 2 on YouTube. Uh, you're also doing videos on your own personal account. I'll give you a chance to plug everything in a second uh, about video games so everyone can find you. Um, obviously, it's a sports podcast, but during summer when there's really not any sports, we have fun, we do other stuff, and uh, I thought you'd fit in great here. I was excited to promote your work. Is there any truth that you are, in fact, retiring as a 49ers fan because it just seems like if you're associated with the 49ers, you retire. That's just the thing to do. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> I thought about it, man. <laughs> Let me tell you, during the whole Harbaugh-York thing, I really thought about it. I was like, you know what? I don't know if I want to support any of this anymore. It's just such a debacle. I, I, and the snowball effect of one thing after another, there's, there's nothing like it. I, I can't, I, like, I'm, I'm ready for the 30 for 30 49ers documentary now. Like, I want to watch it tomorrow just right. to find out, you know, what went on in that building and what's going on right now. It's just crazy. Did you hear his interview with Colin Cowherd, Harbaugh, the other day? Of course, yeah. Oh, my as God. As soon as it was, I noticed it was trending, I listened right away. I listened to it twice. <laughs> <laughs> and he tweeted that he would only take 50% of the blame or something. And I was thinking, man, you don't hear him just – and I'm not a big, like, Cowherd fan. I don't mean to, like, take his side or anything. But it felt like, as someone who's died in a few interviews, that he was just throwing everything he had at Harbaugh. And Harbaugh just was not, wouldn't bite on anything. He did, would not want to talk about anything. And Well, I, you, have to, you have to read sorry, – sorry to cut you off. No, you have no. to read Matt. Uh, Matt Mayoko is the lead uh, beat writer for the 49ers. You have to read his breakdown of how to interview Harbaugh <laughs> because basically what happened was Coward made all of the cardinal sins. Like he did the opposite of what you have to do when you talk to Harbaugh. Yeah, that's that's not a surprise because, I mean, he got nothing. I mean, it was a clunker of clunkers. But I don't know. I would think that if I was a Michigan fan, I'd be fine with it. I would be thinking, you know what? Who cares if Colin Coward doesn't like him? You know, all he did in San Francisco was win, and apparently that wasn't good enough for them, but it'll be good enough for us because all we've done for the last three coaching regimes is lose, and our beautiful, huge stadium has been empty, and it's embarrassing, and just, just let the guy go. I mean, how grouchy can he be? And I'm speaking as a grouchy human. I am undoubtedly a grouchy human. I feel bad for my wife and people around me. I mean, I am clearly can be miserable, but I would... I perceive his misery at just a, a different level, but I'm okay with it, I guess, maybe because I am miserable as well at times. Well, I, I think that Harbaugh is, will be perfect for college and is perfect for college because they're, new players right, come kids. in and out yeah. of the program. So, you know, by the time they're going to be sick of it, you know, they graduate. I think what happened with that last year in San Francisco was – a couple of players completely checked out. Vernon Davis completely just was like, I'm, I'm not going to play this year, really. <laughs> he didn't show up for training camp. He didn't really show up for this season. He had two touchdowns in the first game and then nothing the rest of the year. And uh, Alex Boone did the same thing. He just he didn't show up for training camp either. And, you know, would have been nice, the season. It would have been nice if so. Vernon Davis would have checked out in the 2012 playoffs. Well, the playoffs. And the, 
<laughs> that wouldn't have been One bad. Of the most exciting games of all time. Yeah, I remember I, that. I think you can attest to this that we exchanged pleasantries after. I remember after the game, sitting down when it ended and just saying, "I can't even be mad." It was too good of a, they, it was too good of a it game. It was amazing. Yeah. It was it was, ama- it was one of the greatest playoff games of all time easily. And it was so fun too cuz then the next and my mom said I can't believe how she was teasing me sort of she's like I can't believe how brave you are. The next day you interviewed Kenny Albert about the game cuz he called it for Fox. And he's a friend oh. to the show and I was like, "Yeah, I got to call him and see if he'll come on." And he's like, "Yeah, I would definitely come on. I'm so excited still. I want to talk about it." I remember my mom teasing you like, oh, that was so brave of you because she knows how miserable the Saints can make me. And I'm like, I'm telling you, mom, I wasn't even mad. I didn't even go to bed. Usually they lose a playoff game. I go to bed and I don't wake up till like Wednesday. But I didn't even do that. I just, I was just like, well, I guess we were in a class. Like, it's a classic. It's going to be when they have like NFL top 10 division round games or something. It's going to be in the top three for the rest of my life. Easily. I mean, that game was over like seven different times. It was 17 uh, nothing San Francisco, which I forgot. I, yeah. I just yeah. I just watched some highlights of it or something, and I was like, oh, I know why, because I was thinking about what was the second-best Saints team. And I was like, well, you know, maybe the second-best Saints team was actually the Super Bowl team, because that team that lost to San Francisco was maybe the best team. It's definitely Breeze's best season. He had 46 touchdowns and like 14 interceptions or something that year. And he had 5,400 yards passing. Um, Wow. And um, they went 13-3, and but they were 5-3. And And then they ran the table from there. They destroyed Detroit. The only thing that annoys me about losing the game is that San Francisco didn't win the Super Bowl. Because... I know, that's... Such such a great – it's insane that they didn't win that year. Yeah, because they should have. Because for one, Green Bay was maybe the best team, maybe even better than both of our teams. But they had that miserable week where Philbin's son committed suicide. And you could tell they just were not there against the Giants at all. And they lose. And then the Giants were like, what, an 8-8 eight and eight team? The Saints had spanked them already that year. And there's no way they were beating us in the Superdome. No one was, you know. And um, and then it wasn't that great of a New England team either. I didn't think so. I don't know. Definitely yeah. disappointing that Kyle um, Williams. Yes, <laughs> That's Kyle all Williams. Say about that. Yeah, Kyle Williams. No. just the worst muff. Well, it wasn't even a muff. Bounced it, off his foot, it and was then the, two the of second them. one was yeah. just a fumble. Yeah, yeah the second them. one was just a straight fumble. Yeah, that stinks. And then the 49ers couldn't, you know, it stinks too that they didn't get the other one against Baltimore, which was a really bizarre Super Bowl. I don't know what you do when your team's in the Super Bowl, but I know that, well, like when the Saints were in in 2010, I had a big party. Everyone, everyone just about that I care about in my life was there, except for my one brother who was in Sioux Falls. He was in USHL at the time, but um, he wore a Colston jersey that day and definitely was supporting me. But uh, for your Super Bowl against Baltimore, I was in the midst of a 48-day hospital stay that culminated in surgery, but <laughs> my roommate was an 84-year-old retired school teacher who was lapsing in and out of dementia, and somewhere in the second quarter, he broke his shackles and ran up the emergency 
exit in the hospital. It's like this craziness going on in my my hospital room. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm watching the Super Bowl on a 20-inch like color TV they have, and I was just thinking to myself, like, this is the worst. This is the worst thing ever. And then, and then the lights go out. Then the lights went out, yeah. It was. I remember laughing because the lights went out in the stadium literally seconds after they put that guy's lights out. Like they gave him some kind of medicine <laughs> so he couldn't escape the rest of the night. And I remember just like somehow creating a, an irony like, oh, my God, the lights are out in the Superdome and the lights are out on that poor guy. Bill was his name. Bill's lights are out because he just tried to escape the hospital. Yeah, serendipitous. Right, yeah. <laughs> So that was my uh, day of 49ers Hospital, or, or Super Bowl. I have, a, I have a hard time watching the 49ers, like, with a group of people, or, oh, like, with I anyone, really, because I end up yelling a lot and kind of embarrassing myself, mm. so I, I don't like to do it. Oh, I made that clear. Listen, we had uh, just the, the game before Christmas this last year. It's the second-last game of the year, and the Saints played Atlanta, and then the Bills played Oakland. And it was like a one and a four. My brother was home from school. So I came up with this crazy idea to invite everyone over. Like we'll get pizza in between the games, you know. And the Saints lost horribly. And I wanted to go to bed. And I'm looking around and my house is full of people. And the Bills game has 14 minutes and 46 seconds left in the first quarter. And I'm just like, what did you do to yourself? What are, what are you going to do? And then the Bills lost, too, and um, it was the worst football party of all time. I mean, both teams were eliminated from playoff contention in, the, in their games. I mean, I don't care about the Bills, but everyone else did. It was like, you know, yeah. oh, we'll support each other, you know, it'll be cool, and it was not cool. It was the worst thing ever. But when it's in the Super Bowl, you take a risk. And I, I was probably over – I was more confident probably than I should have been. Like, I just felt like we were going to win. I don't know why, but I just did. Kevin, I want you to tell everyone where they can find all your work. Just lay everything out. Take as much time as you need. Okay, well, um, you can go to youtube.com slash Vsauce2. Uh, the, nu- the number two, not the, the letters. Uh, I don't know. Maybe somebody has the letters. The problem is, is that on Twitter, it's Vsauce2. Spelled out T W O because somebody squatted on the number two and Twitter oh. wouldn't wouldn't give me it give me the account back after a lot of poking and prodding. But uh, did you anyway. ever talk to the squatter? Like did did you ever? No, no, just someone. It, it's such an old account. There's like no one there. I don't think they've logged in. It's like a four year old account. Someone just registered it and then and Twitter w- won't give it to us. So. That's why the, that's why the difference. Sometimes people will write at Vsauce number two on Twitter because that's what animal is actually called, and I just I lose it. It goes into no man's land. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. keep going. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, you can also you can see all of my uh, personal dealings on KevinLieber.com. Lieber spelled L-I-E-B-E-R. And I just I just kind of use that website as like a log of the different stuff that I'm doing outside of making videos. So speaking at events and uh, personal side projects and stuff like that, you can check out. 
And then if you're into retro video games, uh, on my personal channel, which is just uh, youtube.com slash Kevin Lieber, I just talk about old games. I have a huge passion for old video games, and um, I like to collect them, and I like to talk about them because there's a lot of memories associated with video games for me, at least, growing up with them, you know, and I think it's really fun to share those stories and, and hear from other people who have their own stories about growing up with, uh, with video games. So yeah, I've been enjoy- you can check that out as well. I've been enjoying those a lot. One thing I would say to do too is if you go to KevinLieber.com and you click on About, there is a ton of great links that you can follow probably to make it easy. You can go right to the Mind Blow episodes or the different shows that you have are easy to click on. There's also ways to connect really nice. It's a well-designed website. You can find Facebook and you know Twitter and you, the direct links to YouTube. So all that would be helpful. Yeah, well. we, yeah. we also actually launched an actual Vsauce website um, like last month, vsauce.com, which is really nice. We spent a long time working with designers on that. So if you want to watch all of our videos, all of the Vsauce videos, that's the easiest way to do it. Just go to vsauce.com and you can see Michael's videos, my videos, and Jake's videos. Well, I can promise you that some of our listeners will definitely check this out, but I can also promise that probably they're not famous musicians. As we established in the beginning, clearly they don't listen because I'm using their music and they're not scolding us. <laughs> That's okay. Although I, uh... I do secretly like dream that no, all the guys from Pearl Jam listen. It's just that they are just cool with it. They're just like, ah, you know, he's not making much money on this. Let's let him play State of Love and Trust every time. We don't care, you know. It's like, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, who was it? Who did you have in the beginning? It was Tool, right? Yeah, yeah, that was a band that I knew we had in common. Um, yeah. Because I remember talking to you. I remember the one year a Pearl Jam album and the 10,000 Days album came out on the same day. And because of that, that album has always sort of been lost on me in terms of Tool um, because I just didn't make a connection with it right away because I was so lost in whatever Pearl Jam album it was at the time, which I think was maybe Ride Act. Do you remember what year 10,000 Days came out? Was it 2003? Um, I was going to say 2005. That I'm could, not sure. Yeah, I don't remember either. But And also that case always irritated me because I didn't know what to do with it with my CDs. Remember? Yeah, there was supposed to be a bunch of secrets that you could find out. But I was like, what? I, I never found the secrets. It was a stereoscopic kind of like 3D thing yeah, that I, they had going. And they I, folded it all weird and it wouldn't lay on your shelf with the other cases. No. Well, it was, yeah. And those are probably the two dumbest reasons to not love an album. But... You know, like, the uh, Undertow album was one of the first I owned and one of the first concerts I ever seen. Um, there was this place that was right down the street from my house. It was a, a grocery store, like, complex. And at the one end, there was a nightclub, and they would have concerts there. And I didn't go to many there, but I seen Typo Negative there. I seen Tool there. Uh, I seen, like, four or five really cool bands there. And one of them was Tool. It was one of the first shows I went to. And it was on the Undertow tour. I was maybe 13 or 14, something like that, young. And I remember it most for the fact that I never saw uh, Maynard's face. He stood backwards facing 
the 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 bass player's amps the whole night. Yeah, he does that. <laughs> yeah, and and then he like he would come if he came out too far or when they were walking on and off. There was these two guys with pizza boxes, giant pizza boxes that they would use to cover his face. And oh, I was like, so what's, weird. yeah, what's the deal with the pizza boxes? And I don't think there was a deal. I just think like they had pizza boxes in the back and he's like, use these to cover my face. If anyone can see it, you know? So like, <laughs> that's, that's kind of awesome. Right. And all the songs that night were from opiate or undertow. And that was one of my first shows and it was such a wild experience. And he may or may not have taken his penis out at one point in the show as well. And I just remember, like, leaving that and listening forever. And then um, the next album came out when I was in high school. And you know how music is when you come comes out when you're in high school. It's like a different connection. And mm-hmm. uh, that's maybe the one of the best CDs of all time, too, I think. So I don't know. I just didn't make the same connection with that one. But that's why I played Tool, if you're wondering. So I knew we had them in common. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I think you didn't make a connection with 10,000 Days because it's not very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, that's probably true, too. I mean, I, I think it's it's the worst of them. It came out yeah, after uh, after um, the one between that and Anima 2, right? Because, yeah. Yeah, Lateralis. Like, yeah, that, so that was the one I was thinking of, like, in 2003-ish. And that was the other time I seen them, and it was such a different experience because it was at our arena where the Sabres play. You know, so I went. From, yeah, that's that's the only time I saw them was in an arena. You're lucky that you saw them in such a small venue. That's incredible. Yeah, it was only because one of my friends had a cool older brother. You know, like one of my friends nah. had a brother that was like five years older than us. So he took us to that. Uh, he took us to the first time Green Day was ever in Buffalo. They played. Wow. Um, yeah, they played at an outdoor venue near the airport, and it was right. Maybe they had one hit from Dookie, but it was only sort of a hit. I knew I'd seen the video on MTV, but really I just got in the car and went, you know. And honestly, I didn't become a Green Day fan because of that show. Like, I barely remember much of it. But I got to see that, and then uh, who, what else did he take us to see? I don't know, a few cool shows. A helmet show, did I say that? Did, right? you, did you ever, like, thank him as an adult? Like, yeah. thank you for introducing me to yeah, no, great music? Yeah, I saw him at a Sabres game, like, in 2005, and I hadn't seen him in a while. And, um, yeah, you know, absolutely. Almost everything I liked in music was because of him, too. Like, because we just... Me and my my friend, that was his younger brother, we were just learning about... Like, before that, we liked, you know... I don't know. I knew I had the Skid Row tape, but I also had, like, the Naughty by Nature tape. I was lost. You know, I was all over the place. You know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Then, I think everybody needs that. Everybody needs yeah. a friend's cool cool older brother, or else they will be lost. Yeah. One last thing. I'll let you go, because we're way past how much time we talked about. I'm sure you probably want to do other things. But um, I was... We had this guy, there's this band called Our Lady Peace. I don't know if you know who they are. They're like a Canadian band. They're really popular in Buffalo because of our proximity to Canada. Like, they're a big Canadian band. And then, like, Bob Rock kind of ruined them the way he did to some other bands, like Metallica fans. Not a big one necessarily, but they swear by, like, Bob Rock ruined that band. Um, but I had. Did they think Superman's dead? Yes, yes, that's the band. Yeah. Yeah, so they had like four albums the first four albums they're they're great and i was just thinking about these the other day because it's canada day so i tweeted like my rankings of canadian bands 
And I didn't include them. And I was thinking about how crazy 17-year-old me would have thought of that. Like, how – like, because they were such a big band. I had probably seen them between 1996 and whenever that – 2003, let's say, probably 20 times. You know, and then, like, maybe Bush is like that too. Like, you look back as an adult and you're like, those bands weren't that good actually. But, man, did I love them. And, you know, every once in a while you put 16 stone in and you hope no one's around and, like – before you know it, it's like machine head is on and you're totally marking out to it, you know, but then it's the next day and you're like, oh man, that album sucks. But I, I don't know. Do you have bands like this in your mind? Like, Yo, yeah, yeah. Totally. I do like a whole uh, like uh, hardcore straight edge earth crisis and like that phase. Mm-hmm where I was listening to all these indie bands, Earth Crisis, uh, Snapcase, uh, Boy Sets Fire, all of these bands that, that, they're not like exactly cringeworthy in the same way that you're talking about. Right. Like I think, like Bush was, was radio rock, right? Oh yeah. Oh, so yeah. So that's like a little bit of a different thing, whereas Earth Crisis is just kind of like barking about Mankind's destroying Mother Nature, which I thought was really cool when I was sixteen. I guess, um, and listening to it now, it's it's not so much cringeworthy, cringeworthy as it is just kind of like, why did I like this so much? Right. I had a huge, huge love for like New York City metal. Guys, a huge Helmet and, and a huge um, Life of Agony fan, and when I listen to those bands now, I actually still love it. I don't know. We're off the rails. I don't know. Kevin Lieber. Yeah, I got com. All the the stuff there is it's the best place to find everything. He also said the Vsauce.com page as well. And um Thanks, Bud. Yeah, thank you. I know this is a long time coming. We were supposed to do this last year around this time, but you know, I'm happy that we're uh, able to make it happen this 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 year. Sounds good. And uh I'll see you in September once uh, kickoff starts. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon, bud. All right. Thanks, Steve. All right. I want to thank Kevin Lieber for being on the podcast today. I also want to thank Brett Martin and Katie Baker. Lots of interview time today. Not much time for us. Kind of perfect. Uh, I want to thank our guests. Last week on the show, I don't think I mentioned it off the top, we had Linda Cohn and Brett Martin, and it was one of our most well-received podcasts we've done in a while. Uh, The PR guys at ESPN emailed me, pleased with it, uh, really happy with the interview and the way it went. Uh, Both of them, um, Mark Simon, very happy with – did I say that right when I said Linda Cohn? You said Brett Martin. Oh, no, he's on this show. Yeah. It was Linda Cohn and Mark Mark Simon. Simon. Yep. Uh, you can find that episode on our website, www.sports-casters.com. On iTunes, search Sportscasters and Stitcher as well. You can find us on Twitter, uh, at sports underscore casters, or at Don Like Sports. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. And we're going to close this bad boy out right now with one last thing. 
All right, my last thing this week is uh, just kind of an observation about my life. I, tomorrow, I'm having some guys come over to put a new roof on my house, which mm. will easily be the most money I've spent on one, th- like just hand it over to somebody. And, is it uh, about ten grand? It's probably. I'm hoping it'll be around like the the quote or whatever was fifty five hundred, but there's oh. always room for like okay, I was other over stuff. Right? Yeah, it's just a quote. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking it'll be six grand. Six. I'm yeah. hoping if they need to replace. They're going to squeeze another couple hundred. Out of <laughs> but uh, yeah, you spend all this money on something, and my house is not going to be like any cooler after it's done or anything like that. So on the one hand, I'm excited. I'm not excited, but I want to get this over with because I'm just holding this money that I can't spend because I need to see how much the roof is going to be. Like all the tax return money I got this year, I've just been hanging on to for this. But uh, Did you go into buying this house knowing this would be something you would do? Uh, I probably should have if I didn't. We've known for a few years that it needs a roof. Yeah, because I think it's something everyone puts off as long as they yeah, can, yeah. sort of. And uh, some people will just put another layer on top of the roof that's up there, but mine already has too many. And uh, it's it's maybe the least exciting thing. I I'd have a hard time thinking of something you could spend more money on. It's less exciting that isn't like medical bills, but medical bills like at least keep you alive, right? Whatever. So I'm not. That's uh, one thing that sucks about homeownership, I guess. Yeah, keeping up your house is one of the main reasons why we built a new one. Yeah. And I've said before on the podcast, it was a perfect storm for us to have the means to do it. Right. You know, between Obama giving the $8,000 away without repayment. Right. Which he was doing at the time, which wasn't that way the whole time. Did you, when you bought your house, did you have to pay it back? Um, I think we filed it that way, but then you could file like an amended return to not have to pay it back depending on when you close. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So there was that. And then, uh, the first lady's dad did a lot of the work and that came off. So we got very lucky. Um, but there was other built options, uh, but we just didn't want to do it because, you know, you look at one and it's like, yep, you could buy this, but in 10 years you're going to need a roof. Right. You know, where we went and picked out our roof, and because of the relationship uh, Tammy's dad had with the guy who was building it, he said you can pick out a 40-year roof even though your house comes with a 30. Okay. You know, so I don't know if it will really last 40 years, but that's let's uh, say it lasts 31. That's a long time from the day we moved in. Yeah, I honestly, I mean, I don't mean to be sound cold, but I if it lasts five years and then I sell the house, I don't care what happens to my roof after I'm gone. So right, yeah. I hope the guys come out tomorrow, do a great job, and uh, it's everything's wonderful, but I just need it to sell it, essentially, and move into a bigger house. Would you... I don't know if you've ever had work done like this, but with the whole crew coming, would you go out and get like donuts and coffee? Get I always I always just feel the need when people come to my house yeah. that I want to offer them stuff. Yeah, I, I figured they're doing something that's expensive and big. I, might I don't know them. if you have to go Paula's Donuts, but, like, but Tim, Hortons Tim Hortons is enough. You know? Yeah, I was thinking I'd maybe do that tomorrow morning. Yeah, I, I like that. And I feel like when you do stuff like that, when they're up on your roof, they, they hammer and nail in all the way. Yeah. Instead of just leaving it because who the hell is this little, guy anyway? A little more precise. Right. Yeah. You know, anytime the guys come in to do the satellite dish, you know, I offer, do you need want a bottle of water? Do you need sure. to use the bathroom? Yeah, yeah. You want my wife to jerk you off? You know, just the basic <laughs> things just to try to make right. them feel more you comfortable. Be polite, right? Yeah. All right. I know one last thing. I know I live a 
non-glamorous life. Okay. Um, under the radar. I'm sure I could stay in my house for weeks and weeks and weeks and have only the handful of people who truly care about me even notice that I have been in my house for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? Okay. But that doesn't mean I'm not a little upset with God. Because not only does he give Russell Wilson the ability to play football at a championship NFL level, he also gave him the ability to play baseball at a professional level. Uh, He's more handsome than me. He has a better colon than me. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, And despite all that, God still feels the need to go to him for conversation as opposed to me. Like, why not talk to me, comma, God? (laughs) You've already done plenty for Russ. Come speak to me. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, uh, Russell Wilson sat down to do an interview with a San Diego pastor. I don't know if there's a pastors and QBs podcast that's coming for our top billing blog or what, but he revealed uh, that he's chosen not to sleep with his girlfriend. And now a lot of people have teased him about this and I'm not going to do that. It's too easy. But what I was really surprised or annoyed with was him saying, my girlfriend was on tour and I was looking at her in the mirror and God spoke to me. Oh. Okay. He goes on to say, he said, I need you to lead her. Okay. So then he said, I told her, what would you do if we took all that extra stuff, quote unquote, off the table and just did it Jesus's way? Okay. And he did clarify, yes, he was talking about sex. Interesting. <sighs> Russ. Russ, 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 Russ. Look it. How, do, how, how does this come up? Well, I guess when you're chit-chatting with a pastor, you might. Now, here's what I'm wondering. Is he trying to show off to the pastor? The pastor? Is he like, you know, a pastor's not impressed with my quarterback shit. But I bet he'd be pretty impressed if I told him that Jesus was talking to me in mirrors. Yeah, and it just came out a few hours ago that Russell Wilson says God spoke to him and explained the Super Bowl interception. Like, really? Th- uh, this is the stuff, like you said, it's easy to make fun of a guy for. But uh, says How that- many more times does Russell Wilson have to talk about God or Jesus explaining things to him before people s- seriously start questioning his sanity? And will this cost him money? When he's negotiating with the Seahawks, because he's still a very low-paid guy, he's getting ready to cash in and make that big, heavy contract. Do they worry about this? When does he? When does he get the? Tebow, he's got one more year. The Tebow treatment, right? Yeah. When well, does whatever that the happen? Tebow treatment is, because Tebow is, despite his inability to really throw a football uh, overly well, like what was he was drafted to do. Uh, People have been relatively nice to him. He may have been a little bit of a punchline, but I'm not. I don't think his God stuff is what cost him his job as much as his play. No, I don't think stuff. people took him out of the league because he loved Jesus or God. But if you start going around long enough talking about 
people speaking uh, potentially faith, let's say faith-based figures speaking to you in mirrors um, long enough, people are going to – and it, you know, if you're a handsome dude dating a hot chick and you admit out loud that you guys don't have sex, people are going to joke about that. Right. It's not going to be me, but people will do it and have. I've seen it on Twitter. Now tell me what the explanation for the Super Bowl interception was. Um, that play happens and they pick the ball off and I take three steps, Wilson said. And on the third step, God says to me, I'm using you. I want to see how you respond. But most importantly, I want them to see how you respond. During the game, he said this. On the third step after the ball was picked off. I'm assuming he means he's taking three steps to go tackle, like in the direction of the interceptor. So if God is talking to Russell on the field, are the Seahawks worried about this? I'm kind of trying to be a little bit serious now. Yeah, I can this right now. This is innocent, and we're just having fun. Can this get out of hand for him? I think one of two things can happen. One, um, it goes away if he continues to be awesome, and the right. team continues to be awesome. As long as you're one of the best in the world at it. This yeah. is kind of like the Rex Ryan thing. Like when he was the sexy new coach in New York, and they were winning and making championship games then all the attention that like Rex Ryan brought was okay, or anybody that brings a lot of attention. When Tebow was winning games, it's okay that there's hundreds of people. When Brett Favre was uh, taking Minnesota to the championship game, it was okay that it was a circus there because of Brett Favre. Yeah, almost, almost nobody cares what you do if you're playing well and winning right. games. But when the circus is coming around and you're not producing, then I guess it's an issue. So I, I think it all just... Depends on how well he plays. Now, are we being a little unfair in saying, hey, now wait a minute. You guys were complaining earlier in the show about a quarterback who chooses to live his life as an underage person in bars and nightclubs and punching girls. And here's a guy who uh, respects his beautiful girlfriend and is living his life based on a set of standards and morals that... Um, you would be glad to have your son live oh, yeah. by. I have no problem with what Russell Wilson's doing. Are we, are we being uh, jerks, kind of? Even what people said about Tebow, though, and maybe it's a little unfair because it's a guy's belief, whatever, is they just said kind of tone it down publicly a little bit. Don't stop to believe. Don't stop believing it or anything, but it sounds like Russ Wilson thinks he has a message to deliver. 